Is that all you want, Steve? All I want is to enter my house justified. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Directors Club podcast. I am Jim Laskowski, and joining me today is someone you'll recognize as an MVP to the show. Most importantly, though, he's become one of my new favorite podcasters in his own right. I mean, he's the host of the terrific new show that you can find on the Now Playing Network, and that is, of course, supporting characters. Welcome once again, the astute and very talented Bill Ackerman. Thank you for having me. (laughs) Oh, man, I am always thrilled to talk with you, sir, because uh, you do your research, you do your homework, and you bring enthusiasm to the table. Um, So, yeah. Uh, and you're kicking butt. You're 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 really doing a fantastic job on your podcast, and it's an oh, honor you. to have you on the network. I appreciate it. Yeah, no, thank. Well, I mean, I wouldn't even be doing a podcast if you hadn't uh, coaxed me into it. So I owe I owe it to you. <laughs> yeah, I have my moments where I um, sort of play the role of uh, of enthusiast and mentor of some kind, and I don't know. It's it's like I did that for for a lot of musicians back in the day, but that sort of it almost becomes a phase where you really become focused on it. And maybe for a year or two, you dedicate all you can and all your energy to it. Um, but then the real work, the real world kicks you in the butt and you kind of realize I can't keep doing this, um, while working a day job, but podcasting is different. I mean, we do put a lot of hard work into this, Oh yeah. but, um, at the same time, I don't know. It, it seems a lot easier to just set up microphones and have a conversation like you would back in the day when we just talked over landlines. And, uh, you know, it's just, you don't have to, like, set up a whole bunch of equipment. You don't have to get roadies and go to a club. Um, so, yeah, I mean, maybe that will be the next uh, phase where we become podcast rock stars and we do this live, which would be terrifying. But I know that podcasts like Film Spotting have done exactly that. Um, but you know, I I, yeah. I just like the uh, the comfort that I get from, and maybe it is because I'm an introvert that I enjoy just uh, having phone conversations, or in this case, Skype conversations about things we love. Well, that's funny because the uh, the first podcast I did for uh, supporting characters, I did have an audience. It was very nerve wracking because uh, when I recorded Daniel Bird, I had uh, I had two friends sitting on the other side of the room watching us the entire time. <laughs> Were they cats? Uh, no, we had a cat too. Okay. One of them was Sam Deegan. Uh, oh, that's right. Yeah, podcast. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that's a little nerve wracking, but uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of like going to a job interview, and then two other people show up in the room, and you're like, "Oh, that's oh, okay. Well, I can handle yeah. this, even though yeah. I'm better at one on one." But um, you know, we are about to embark on quite the journey together today. Uh, I don't know about you, but I've got some cocaine. <laughs> and a whiskey here. I'm ready to guzzle some booze and talk about some start and uh, bleh, talk about some stout-hearted men. Yeah, well, luckily the Skype connection uh, in this uh, Mexican whorehouse is really good. So I've gotten into the spirit too, and uh, I've just put down my tequila. And we can get started anytime you're ready. Yeah, we got to talk about some characters that are out for blood, money, or they're just. They're uh, a victim of good old-fashioned self-destruction. Let, let me ask you this. So Sam Peckinpah is one of those directors that has... I, I mean, even among directors with a lot of mythology, I think he's one that is almost like... Um, 
he he was someone that like really built a mythos around him while he was certainly from the like the wild bunch period on where he really kind of lived up to the bloody sam image and you know with the cowboy hats and the bandana and you know the outrageous kind of persona and the hard drinking hard living kind of thing that he adopted like you know on even during the shooting of a lot of the films which you know becomes a problem as they uh, as they progress um what I guess I guess maybe where I want to start is like what what was your impression before we started researching this? What what did you think of Sam Peckinpah? This song goes out to all you PM Dawn fans. Rest in peace, Prince B. That's the way it goes, I guess. As bloody Sam, Marine Corps soldier turned movie fan. Met Don Siegel, things started to change. Did scripts for Gunsmoke, pretty amazing. Ride the high country, beat Fellini over in Belgium, 63. The violence from Wild Bunch still transcends. Straw Dogs is so very troubling. Awesome and Weekend was a crazy mess, but holy shit, Pat here, Billy the Kid. Nihilism, so real. Bring me the head of Alfredo Garcia. Morality, violence, complicated men. Quarreling with beautiful women For the briefest moment I watch you think about what it's like To watch Peck and Paul One of these days I think that you'll find yourself Watching Peck and Paul And so my first experience w- with Peckinpah was Straw Dogs. And we'll get to that, obviously, and talk about it in greater detail. But, you know, I just saw him as kind of a, a go-for-broke, audacious director who really wanted to tap into the male psyche and masculinity and what it means uh, both in film and the West. And just like, yeah, I think I think he's a really fascinating character who you know i mentioned self-destruction it seems like he made an art out of that like he sort of just i you know he must have realized the amount of booze and cocaine he was consuming but it also it's one of those experiences like with when people say about the beatles doing you know all these hallucinogens or whatever and that sort of allowed them to to blossom and and foster their creativity and and make it something even more transcendent in the times of like magical mystery tour and sergeant pepper in some crazy way maybe it was fine for peckinpah to be the man he was because look at the films he he gave us i realized that at you know like the the sort of the downfall after like bring me the head of alfredo garcia <laughs> the, the 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 films themselves really um went down in quality but before that, I, I, I am just kind of enthralled, and pretty much every movie I watch for the first time, I immediately wanted to watch again, and I think that's the, the sign of a, a... And mostly because of, like, the stories you read about them, and there's just, there's just like you said, a, a whole mythology around Sam, Sam Peckinpah that you don't get with your ordinary average day director. 
Yeah, what's funny? I'm also thinking about him just in terms of like um, like other filmmakers, and he's somebody. I, it, it's not a comparison that might be immediately apparent. I always think of him in relation to Robert Altman, because um, they both had kind of cut their teeth in a lot of television work before becoming established sure. as filmmakers, and they didn't come out roaring with success right away. I mean, you know, Altman with like the Delinquents and. Uh, Peckinpah with the Deadly Companions, but then like around 69, 1970, they had like this kind of watershed breakthrough film that was kind of a counterculture accepted film, even though like Altman's dealing like in the war film genre and, and uh, Peckinpah's with the Wild Bunch is dealing in the Western genre. Like they have, like they, they're dealing in conservative genres, but like they're doing them in a very counterculture friendly kind of way. Um, and they're both, uh, they're both, hard living characters they're you know I, I i forget if altman was as much of a drinker as he was a pot smoker but i feel like he was a hard drinker in that period too um yeah and they also were the kind of filmmakers that were not necessarily the screenwriter's best friend altman you know was someone that famously liked a lot of improvisation and peckinpah did a lot of uncredited rewrite work on scripts to give them his own flavor uh and then, you know, they were both such iconoclast, burn the bridges, you know, fight with the studios or fight with producers that, that by the, um, you know, the er, coming of the 1980s, like, Altman was kind of pushed into, uh, you know, filming plays and kind of working in independent film for a while. And Peckinpah just faded and died. I mean, because he, but neither one of them was really built for like that that kind of uh, assembly line studio system. And it's like, it's just like a miracle that they arrived at a point where they kind of, they were there for like the last gasp of that old Hollywood. Mm-hmm. And then they took to those new freedoms and they were, you know, a little bit older than like the movie brat generation. So they kind of just, they had a little bit more life experience than the Spielbergs or the De Palmas or the Scorseses. Like they, you know, I mean, he was a Marine. Like Peckinpah, right. you know, Peckinpah had like that tie, a, a tie that he kind of maybe overstated in interviews, but like he had that tie to like an Old West background, even though he, you know, I don't know if he came from like a prep school background, but he did not come from like a cattle ranch. <laughs> but like he definitely liked to play up that connection. But like they, um, you know, those guys, they were already kind of adults, primed and ready with, like, real experience. And when they became filmmakers, they had they had all this non-film stuff in their DNA, which I think that when you get to, like, you know, people like Bogdanovich or Scorsese, a lot of their life experience came from other films. Yeah, um, it's, it's amazing that they thrived and sustained a career despite, you know, uh, issues with studios or they never really got... Um, too jaded. They just kept. They kept. They were persistent in the, in their vision. I mean, I know there was a lot of compromises with pretty much the majority of Peckinpah's films. Yeah. Well, I think I think Peckinpah got off on fighting. I think. That, yeah, that I makes think, sense. I think that he actually felt it necessary as part of his creative process to be a terror on set and to be a terror to a lot of you know the system that was allowing him to make the films in the first place. And I think that that's. That's something that like adds to his kind of like rebel iconoclast like romantic image. Like that's why people have always kind of had a, there's always been like a little cult following around him, uh, it's, which is only, you know, grown with each, you know, passing decade. But like uh I, I imagine it would be like tough to hire him <laughs> if, you, if you if you wanted to hire him. He he made it like he didn't make it pleasant for most of his producers that were sympathetic to his 
ideas. And it's funny that he never seemed to even really follow success with um, necessarily with more freedom. It felt like because it, someone like Wet, this is like the last person you know you would think to compare to, but like someone like Wes Craven. <laughs> but like even when they would have success, <laughs> they would put themselves in situations which might seem like a little bit better, but they would have less control. Like they would maybe get yeah. more money, but they would not necessarily be calling the shots the way they would on a smaller production. Like Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid comes right after The Getaway, and we'll get to those films, but like The Getaway was a big hit. But he had his hands tied just as much on Pat Garrett as like anything else he did. <laughs> yeah, I know that's fascinating. And I, 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 I sense, based on a couple of interviews I saw, he was very antagonistic, even with the interviewers and journalists, where, you know, like, one of the first things he would do is sort of correct, you know, well, let me explain this to you. Uh, you know, just the type who, he had no qualms with saying with what was on his mind, and he loved to, not I don't think he was a bully, but I just think he was so self-assured that he had no problems with confronting people with his beliefs and his ideas and his interpretation of his vision and well I think even I mean this is a total side talk but just the notion of self-assuredness with directors I mean even even the Woody Allens that you know can play you know the underconfident nebbish kind of acting parts I think almost to to a man like you know whether they be uh, you know, artier, kind of eccentric type like Tim Burton or David Lynch or whatever. Like, I think all of them call the shots like generals on film sets. Like, yeah. I don't think you can have that job, you know, I mean, whether it's Quentin Tarantino or like, you know, someone that's like, you know, kind of a big personality or like someone that is kind of shy and retiring. Like, they all have to call shots because that's just how things get done. <laughs> well, I like what you said earlier about having life experience and clearly him being in the military informed a lot of his... Um, meditations on violence because I think a, a defining moment for Peck and Paul was early on, and I think he was on a train, um, maybe serving in the war, but uh, he saw somebody get shot right in front of him for the first time, and he described it as it feeling like an eternity, like it it it, it was just like slow motion as he's watching somebody die right in front of him. And obviously there's post-traumatic stress from that experience, but clearly he wrestles with why we are driven to violence in the majority of his films. And a lot of, in a lot of the action sequences, you will find somebody getting shot and it being in slow motion, and I think that's to reflect on a personal experience that he had. Yeah, I, did you... Um I'm trying to think. Did you ever see the the slow motion death that inspired that? It wasn't. It, it, I'm trying to think who it was. It was the editor. I think it was the editor for the Wild Bunch was working on a show. The the name of it escapes me. But the uh, what is the guy's name? The actor uh, who plays in uh, Joe Don Baker. Oh Joe yeah, Don yeah, ba- yeah. Joe Don Baker gets shot in this television show, and it's a. They they used two different camera speeds, and uh, I guess when they were getting ready to do the Wild Bunch, it so excited Peck and Paw that he used I forget how many different camera setups was it five, but he used he would like have several different uh, cameras at different speeds recording the uh, the, 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 the the deaths, and uh, like I mean that's kind of like his trademark thing, but it's um, that was something that was partially brought to him by was it Lou Lombardo? I'm I, I'm blanking on the name now, that's, but that name sounds familiar. Yeah, but I mean, I mean, obviously, Peckinpah cut his teeth on a lot of early westerns. Um, I th- I don't know if the the Joe Don Baker death you're thinking of is in a show called Death Valley Days, but I mean, obviously, 
he he was a staple too as an actor on like Bonanza and Gunsmoke and all those early shows. Um, but I, th- you know, it's funny because like I, I you know I read how he got his start, and you know he was hired by a director that I kind of want to do next year because I'm not as familiar with him as uh, you know from early on. But Don Siegel, sure, and I'm excited to watch many of his films because I'm most you know, obviously, most notably, he did Invasion of the Body Snatchers, which I've seen many times. Um, and Peck and Paul actually makes a cameo as a meter reader in Body Snatchers. Mm-hmm. But yeah, he worked with um, he worked with Siegel early on, and uh, you know, he was a writer on a number of western series. Um, and you know, that's that's a good place to you know, like like you said with Altman, that's a good place to sort of get your your foot in the door and sort of just watch from a distance and see how films are put together. But, yeah, well, uh, yeah. yeah, well, a lot of like those, a lot of those studio system directors that thrived in the New Hollywood, the nineteen seventies, um, you know, that made that transition from old Hollywood to New Hollywood. A lot of them, like you know, um, Sidney Lumet and John Frankenheimer, even uh, William Friedkin, uh, you know, like they all had that television background. Um, Altman, of course, yeah. And, uh, but yeah, uh, and nowadays uh, it's like a total reversal, <laughs> where yeah, you know, a lot of directors are going to TV. Well, did you get a chance to see any... Have you ever seen any of Peckinpah's television work? Uh, no, I haven't, no. Yeah, um, they have the the, uh, the complete uh, series The Westerner on, um, on YouTube right now. I think it's public domain. Um, that's... I mean, it's not necessarily, like, uh, going to make you forget the, 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 the major feature film work, but if you want a good sample of his early work, that's... That's pretty enjoyable stuff, and that has Brian Keith, who uh, was the uh, the lead in the first uh, Peck and Puff feature, right. the Deadly Companions. Um, it's almost even a little noirish. Like if the, the first, I'd say check out the first episode. I think it's called I think it's called Jeff. Um, it, it'll it'll indicate like you know episode one, um, but it's you know it's like a small scale. It's like twenty five minutes long. It doesn't take up a lot of time. If you want to sample what early Peck and Puff uh, television work is like, that's that's the stuff that got him the attention to get into films was the westerner yeah i would like to do that the same way i mentioned on the uh hitchcock episode um the actress that was in the wrong man uh apparently she was in an episode of alfred hitchcock presents that hitchcock actually directed that is supposed to be pretty incredible too so it'd be interesting to yeah go back and watch episodes of tv shows directed by some of my favorite filmmakers outside of like seeing, you know, Wes Craven doing an eighties twilight zone show or something along those lines. But yeah, I mean, like we mentioned, you know, him having just like a plethora of life experiences certainly made him, you know, a more complex storyteller than somebody like Brian De Palma, which, you know, I, I think Brian De Palma just loves movies and every movie is like, let me just show you how much I love movies and movies and movies and movies and movies and, movies and yeah. let me pay homage to this. And I'm not, you know, saying that's a bad thing at all. But I, I, I do think that um, his storytelling, Sam Peckinpah's storytelling, even early on, and we'll get to the film that I am absolutely smitten with in a bit, since I, I didn't get a chance to see his very first film because, um, I don't know, the quality I, I came across on Amazon Video was not the best and I had trouble tracking down a decent uh, print of it, or not print, yeah. but you know. <laughs> well, well, it's the yeah, the Deadly Companions is um, there is a good version. Well, I mean, it's not like a Blu-ray, but uh, there is a widescreen 
uh, DVD through, I want to say it's VCI that, hmm. uh, of the Deadly Companions, because it's, it's public domain, so you can, you can find a lousy pan and scan yeah. version of Deadly Companions, you know, anywhere. That's but, what I found. <laughs> but yeah, the, um, seen in the right aspect ratio, it's, it's not bad. It's, it's, it's got a lot of things that, you know, in their infancy, you know, he develops, you know, more, uh, sophisticatedly in, in the later films. Um, but it's, um, I would say that uh, yeah, it, it, it's about a, a, like a uh, you know like a uh, like an outlaw drifter type who inadvertently uh, kills the son of this uh, woman who's like a, a widow working like as a uh, like a dance hall girl like a uh, essentially like the local. I don't know. She's literally a prostitute, but she like occupies that same kind of like local whore thing that like Stella Stevens does in like Cable Hogue or, you know, any of those kind of like uh, characters. And then he and two other like slightly more overtly criminal types, like they, they agree to uh, help her bring the, the dead boy's body to like a, uh, a cemetery where her husband is buried, but they have to cross through dangerous, uh, I forget if it's Apache territory. So it's it's got like echoes of like you know anything from like Ride the High Country to, I mean like with the two, uh, you know the, like the like the two more loathsome villains. It's like even something like Cable Hogue. It's a little bit like uh, evoked in it, you know, or foreshadowed rather. Um, it's it's got like a troubled kind of protagonist, you know, who's you know been. Um, you know, survived like a mutilation at the hand of like someone like tried to scalp him. Uh, and the producer, I believe, tried to take over the editing. And, oh, completely. Yeah, yeah. it was like, like directing over his shoulder and like wouldn't let him rewrite the script. And yikes! Um, basically, it was a very negative professional experience for him. But it, it kind of still got him. That and the Westerner are what got him ride the high country, which was another script that he you know he was allowed to rewrite that kind of top to bottom in terms of the dialogue and that kind of results in like the first really personal Peck and Paw film and you know probably where the cult really the cult following really starts with him I absolutely love Ride the High Country and you know on any given day I would probably say in the same way that I did with um, Patrick in the Spike Lee episode like maybe the top three is kind of like 1A 1B 1C because um, <laughs> I, I, I pretty much love them all equally for different reasons and this is this one's kind of up there for me because it has just the sense of purity and empathy behind it that I think like is is not apparent in a lot of his other films later on but I mean I don't know if he ever treated a woman as sensitively again as he did with uh, Mariette Hartley in Ride the High Country I mean obviously she experiences <laughs> again some some difficulty involving male relationships yeah. But but I just I, 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 I sense a really em, empathic Peck and Paw uh, with his early early Western here, and and it, and it contains probably my favorite line in all of his films. And you know, dude, he had some incredible dialogue. Oh yeah, from esteemed actors throughout his career. But there's just something about the line, "All I want is to enter my house justified." Yeah. I don't know what like maybe it's just because of you know who's saying it and you you at that point you have some context but you know there, there's this interesting mixture of stoicism 
and longing that is not only portrayed by the characters, but in the actual film itself with the way it opens and the <laughs> incredible closing shot here. Um, I just I found it to be one of the most emotionally satisfying westerns by any director. Yeah, well, it's funny because it's 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 funny in a way, and th- this is another comparison that you might you know do a double take at. But in a way, it almost reminds me of Jackie Brown in that it's like sure, I can it's, see that. It's like a young, a relatively young filmmaker making a self consciously elegiac genre film. Um, to prove that he has the gravitas to pull that off at that age, like he doesn't have to be an old man to have you know tell that story, um, and you know it's and it also employs I don't know that he necessarily was in a position to even make a whole lot of uh, demands as far as the casting goes, but he lucked into some really brilliant stunt casting for like that kind of story because Joel McRae and uh, Randolph Scott they have that that kind of baggage from like their career in you know their careers in like various uh programmer kind of westerns and randolph scott's like in a whole series of really good uh bud Boddicker, uh westerns right before that but the um i think i don't know you talk about that dialogue and uh, did you ever see that um i know patrick loves it that that z channel documentary oh yeah yeah <laughs> you know no, how like jerry great Jerry Harvey, uh, his wedding vow, do- wedding <laughs> vows were lifted from Ride the High Country, like the uh, yeah, totally. They, <laughs> they said to each other in ceremony. That's great. Yeah, no, I mean the relationship between Joel McRae and Randolph Scott is fantastic. Yeah. in this film, um, you know, I mean, it, it, there, there, there's just a tenderness, but it's it's very lyrical, and sometimes it's kind of funny. Um, it's it's just it feels very authentic to me, and. I mean, it's it's it, you know at times it's sweeping and yet at the same time it's very it's a very simple story and there's not a lot of blood and guts and you know hatred but internal conflict throughout the, the leads. Yeah, well, it's the first one where like that friend slash friendly rival dynamic comes into it, which carries over through a pretty significant portion of the films. <laughs> oh yeah, um, like that's really where it begins and. Um, it's maybe at its most cleanly uh, represented in this one, and um, yeah, I, I think that it's it's the it, it was a, a cult favorite. Like it was not like a big success. I mean, it was it was kind of film that like uh, critics and the public weren't really even ready to take something like that seriously. It was almost kind of like. Uh, the only it's 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 him playing on the the same playing field as like the John Ford Howard Hawks, um, like the you know the uh, the old school westerns like it's it's you know it, it's it's definitely like the one Peck and Paw classic that is in the old style you know that like he pretty you know graphically breaks away from in a couple of years but the uh, um, what was I going to say the um, like the the that's that's the that's the cult following f- film for like people that don't like other Sam Peckinpah films. Like they can still respond to the gentleness and the lyricism of that one. That's also where he starts working with uh, is it Lucien Ballard, the, the the DP that shot a lot of his prettiest looking films. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, it, it's just I I kind of respond to you know a western. I guess you would call it a revisionist western. But I think the you know the first western I really loved was um, Unforgiven, mm-hmm. and then eventually 
because of Tarantino's praise, I saw Rio Bravo. Yeah, so yeah. I mean, so I think like those are kind of those are kind of my uh, you know pinnacles for westerns early on. And then the more I explore the genre, the more I find to absolutely enthrall me when you see things like you know the Searchers and uh, several John Ford films and Stagecoach and things like that. But there's just the idea of something being reflective and contemplative, but yet the characters are kind of on a quest for meaning without like it being explicit. It's just it, the meaning is found through their actions and not like I uh, I'm really disconnected from the world and I'm searching for meaning. Um, it's not really like spelled out in that regard, but uh, I just I, I always really gravitate towards that type of characterization. And here he does it, like like we've said, with a lot of um, tenderness. Yeah, well, it's funny. I mean, it is... Um, I was going to say, you can even... But you can even see the, uh, you know, the uh, foreshadowing of things like... Um, like the sexual violence of something like Straw Dogs in the way that the brothers... Oh, sure. ...plan to... To share the wife, you know, like that kind of that kind of menace is already. I mean, that that kind of menace is there in all the early, even even the westerner, like ha, you know, has like some of that that like insinuation of like you know sexual violence. Um, that even you know, and, that, and that's something that you would not find in like you know uh, something like Rio Bravo. Certainly, I don't know. It's funny you think about the western, and the western is such a. Uh, classic american genre up to a certain point but by ride the high country it's kind of at the tail end of you know after that point you have very few westerns that aren't revisionist westerns mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. i mean i mean well that might be simplistic i mean you can certainly make a list of ones that aren't but i feel like a lot of the ones that get discussed whether it be unforgiven or let alone all the cult stuff like mccabe and mrs miller or heaven's gate or whatever like or Django and Jane, you know, I mean, you have a lot of popular revisionist westerns, and you know, and the Wild Bunch really helps kind of kick that off, especially oh, yeah. Pat, Pat Garrett. But like, I don't know, it's like he has the one classic old school western, and then becomes like him and Sergio Leone become like really like the two major architects of a different kind of western around that same time. <laughs> yeah, certainly. I uh, that's another director. You know, obviously, I've seen the trilogy. But um, you know, Sergio Leone was some is, is another one I need to explore further. Just because, like, the more the more I see of the Western genre, the more I grow to appreciate it. Like I said, um, but yeah, I, 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 there's something about an ending, and I think, you know, obviously this can go all, all the way back to the Searchers. But just it's either you know uh, a man accomplishes what he set out to do and sort of walks off into the sunset alone might be a cliche, um, but here. It does something rather profound that I found myself moved by, and it's even, it's even in something like I don't know. One can make the argument. I hate to keep bringing up Reffin, but some can make the argument with the ending of Drive, whether or not um, you know Ryan Gosling goes off and dies uh, after accomplishing what he set out to do. So I mean, like a character that sets out what he you know like he basically has an arc and he sets out to accomplish something and he gets it done and he either goes off travels alone like at the end of Paris, Texas, or he dies like at the end of this film. Um, it just It's just so satisfying to see that, that accomplishment here. Um, and then, you, you know, you have that incredible landscape, the mountains in the background. I, I think just 
the tapestry of shots in this film is really gorgeous. I really like. I, I was so taken with it um, because he's using anamorphic lenses, and you know, at one point, like the, you know, the camera becomes a pair of binoculars and zooms way in. So I mean, it, you know, the, there's there's things here that really stood out to me that you get later on in Peck and Paw's films, but you know, here it's just filtered through such strong relationships and vivid characters. That you like, you mentioned Jackie Brown. I love going back and hanging out with those characters, and I feel the same way about these here. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 the sweetest western that he did by far. Because I think when he gets well, yeah, I mean, because well, there's only a handful of films that really could be described as gentle, and I would say that there are other films that are even more gentle than this one. But uh, I, I I think that if 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 you're somebody that you know appreciates classic Hollywood westerns and are I don't know if you're why you'd be new to Pack and Paw, like, but you know if you like westerns. But if you haven't seen any, I would say that that's probably the most approachable one to start with because it, it's 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 the talent like in full maturity, but it's still uh, in that old style. Yeah, most definitely. And there's you're not going to get some of the explicit uh, violence that uh, you know would later inform his career here. You, you know, there's obviously acts of violence. But um, there, there's not the bright red painted blood that we'll get to momentarily. Yeah. Well, but but the the, um, the forever controversial depiction of male female relationships. In oh Peck boy, does, you, do, you could do a whole book on that. I'm sure somebody <laughs> has written. I'm sure there are you know hundreds of term papers. But uh, this is, I mean, Ride the High Country. You know, does have that that aspect to it, and. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I don't know where you want to start with even addressing that, but like, um, that's difficult. <laughs> well, it, let me let me ask you this. I mean, because there's there's three types of. Uh, I feel like there's well, I feel like there's three types of ways to approach uh, Peck and Paw and how women are, are come off in the films. Like either there's people that enjoy it and just accept it. There are people that recoil from it. And then I think there are people that are horrified by it, but are fast like that are still drawn to understanding it. Maybe like um, like I, for for me, like I don't know if I put that so clearly, but like for me, like I, I think that I think that there's a paranoia about women. There's a mistrust and there's an anxiety that manifests itself in ways like in the ways that, that women come off in his films. That it's like. Uh, he, I think he has some troubling ideas that he's wrestling with, and I think that it, it kind of bursts out in some like really uncomfortable material, and it gets more uncomfortable after this. Um, but I mean, even in this, it's like there's going to be a contemporary viewer with very progressive ideas about gender relation, you know, gender relations that is going to like see a woman being struck and still going with that guy and be like mortified that that is accepted in the in the in the logic or the morality of the film um and you know this is before we even getting to things like straw dogs and bring me the hell of alfredo garcia <laughs> how as somebody that like is a, you know a, a, you know a person with like progressive ideas and a feminist like how how do you take it with like the way that women are handled in these films he clearly has a difficult relationship with women i wouldn't necessarily call peck and pa a misogynist i wouldn't either you know, I mean, it's one of those things, too, where 
you, you, he's portraying a certain world where it is surrounded by misogyny. Is he merely calling out the injustice of, you know, abuse towards women by depicting it? Or is he exploiting it and, you know, almost being comfortable enough with it that it does come, it does come across as, um, I, I don't know, one-dimensional? But, I, I mean, to me, and we'll get to Straw Dogs, because, like, my first experience with that movie before I even thought, you know, more deeply about movies, I was very, I was very uncomfortable... And I still am, obviously, watching a rape scene. But I try to reframe it. I try to reframe certain things as I've gotten older. And I even, <clears throat> to some extent, and well knowing that, like, okay, in Osterman weekend, weekend, weekend <laughs> every woman is naked for no reason. Um, mm-hmm. Even in my, my favorite Peck and Paw film we'll get to, uh, a woman's breasts are lingered on in ways that made me feel uncomfortable. But I can't. I can't decry him. I can't like outright say, yeah, this guy, he's really insensitive and he's depicting women in ways that would rub many feminists and feminist writers the wrong way. I, I, I would like to think that he's doing it for an artistic purpose and because he's creating characters that are, are, are cruel and mean and you have to have those moments. But I mean, the argument also comes with women's responses, like you mentioned, to abuse. Right. And and that's where it gets – there's a gray area. It gets a little fuzzy. It gets a little questionable. Um, I have one specific take on the straw dog scene that we'll get to. Sure. But, uh, you know, here I'm, I, I was like – I really do think that Marriott Hartley's character is very three-dimensional and fully realized and not oh, a yeah. caricature. And, you know, she just happens to have bad luck with men. Yeah. No, I agree with it. And I don't think that he's a misogynist. And I don't think that he's intellectually exploring misogyny, you know, um, in a way that he's completely guiltless. It's someplace someplace else, which makes it both... Which makes it forever problematic, but in an interesting way. And I think sometimes... I think sometimes I find it exciting when films are trouble, <laughs> like where where like they aren't easy to completely defend, but they aren't black and white, you know, es- you know, espousing a- a- an idea that I find repellent. Like there's there's something else going. Like there's someone working w- out their demons on screen, and I think that like the way women are treated in the films is is maybe the most fascinating aspect of the- of them sometimes. But it's also the part that makes me like. <laughs> Uh, you know, it's a little hair-raising, too, because you know that they are not aimed at an intellectual audience. Like, they're aimed at people that will cheer when Ellie McGraw gets slapped in the getaway, for example. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, it's not... It's not. Um, it's, it's very it's, overt. <laughs> it's, and it's tricky. Um, but the trickiness is, is part of the fun. Um, but so let's... So, let's so move getting on. to the next film... So the Major, Major Dundee is the film that he landed with the uh the goodwill that ride the high country's critical notices uh brought him and uh it's a charlton heston vehicle and i think i don't know if he's the sole credited screenwriter but he's definitely part of the screenwriting process on this one uh and it was thought of as a debacle for a long time it was also uh taken away from him and recut 
Um, we've both seen, I imagine, the restored version. I don't think you can see it any other way now. Um, what do you think of this one? I think it's good. I don't think it's great. I... <sighs> You know, I, I realize this is another film that he did lose control of the project, but um, you know, at the same time, he, you know, he's tackling an interesting era of the Civil War. I mean, it's set during the end of it, essentially. Mm-hmm. But um, you know, <laughs> we ha- we do have some racial epitaphs throughout this film, and you know, the idea of wiping out a group of Indians. I mean, I, I honestly. It, that's there for a reason because they've kidnapped three little boys and it becomes this quest. But um, you know, it's 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 kind of it's kind of jagged. But I I I, I got behind it for the most part. I'm not I'm, I've never been the biggest Charlton Heston fan. I think he's pretty one note, mm-hmm. and uh, you know that's kind of the case here. But um, you know, th- there's <laughs> there's some interesting uh, comic relief with um, uh, Benteen. At one point, um, Redneck Peckerwood, of course, with oh, yeah. that's one of Peckinpah's favorite insults here. But um, you know, I just I, I enjoy it for 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 what it was. I think the centerpiece scene um, with the Confederate soldier, played by Warren Oates, who I'm becoming the hugest fan of the more and more I see. Um, I think that that whole centerpiece is great. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's it, it certainly has some interesting moments. As a whole, I don't know if it's necessarily like top tier peck and paw, but it's certainly uh, worth seeing and, and interesting. I, I mean, I realize that the uh, like the, just the ideological conflict here is you know at the forefront, but I didn't necessarily get as invested in the uh, in the characters as much as I'd hoped. Yeah, well, it's a con- it's a confused picture in some ways because yeah. and, and on the one hand, it's like. I think it's like operating as like almost like a crude metaphor for America in the way that like uh, as a melting pot, like whereas sure, the, sure. the Union and Confederate soldiers and the African-American soldiers are all kind of uneasily working together to take out. But at one point, it's was it the Apaches and at another point, it's the French. And, you know, it's it's like two different antagonists that. You know, it's a little. It's not as focused, and it, 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 it also is the one that seems even more than Ride the High Country. It, it feels like the most indebted to other westerns. Um, like it, mm-hmm. it is. I know that it gets compared sometimes to the John Ford Calvary pictures, but it's also like, I mean, the way that the Heston character is kind of like this kind of obstinate, obsessive character. It's like um, you could compare him to the John Wayne characters in like Red River and The Searchers and. I, I think that, like, I think um, it's 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 often been pointed out how many scenes kind of almost work as like uh, rough drafts to scenes that he flashes out or reimagines uh, in the Wild Bunch. Um, you know, uh, so it's like a it's something like a, a trial run for certain things that he pulls off more successfully in that film. Um, but so you can you can tell it's edited to bits. You know, I mean that's the thing. I mean, even though we have a restored version. I think originally he wanted to make this movie like something like four hours long, and you know I don't know if that would make it better or worse, but um, you know like it's it's one of those movies where where you can still tell that it was tinkered with. Yeah, he also didn't have a finished script when he started, which is never a really good idea. <laughs> no. 
Which um, also happened to Nicholas Winding Refn for a film that I won't talk about. But anyway. Well, <laughs> I mean, it even happened with Videodrum, which we have discussed. Oh, that's in right. Episode. Sure. sure. Um, but yeah, the uh, yeah, I, I think that um, I, I've, I've read some things that cited as one of his great films, and I don't hmm. put it that way. Uh, but I, I think that it's... I think it's interesting in the context of his career, but it's yeah. probably not a good place to start. And um, I think almost everything that follows is more interesting, if I'm honest. But it's 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 got a lot of good moments to it. And uh, yeah, Richard Harris is is uh, nice to see him in. You oh know, sure, yeah, 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 It's got sure. like a you know, it's got you know a lot of good. On, I mean, it, we should talk about like his ensemble players because he's one of those actors like. Something like Preston Sturges or whatever that like you know had this kind of stock company of recurring character actors um, like R.G. Armstrong is in a lot of these films and you know mentioned Warren Oates and uh, L.Q. Jones and yeah uh, you, you have um, I think even uh, what's his name is it uh, oh my god I don't my tongue Ben Johnson is he in this one too I th- yeah yeah no he is mm-hmm. yeah like you have you know um, and obviously a lot of- James, James Coburn. Yeah, James Coburn too. I mean, it's like you have these great faces. You know, you have all these real personalities, and I think that that's one thing that really kind of distinguishes films. Like, it's not, if anything, you you might find yourself returning to these films more for the supporting characters than the uh, the lead characters because they're they're so colorfully populated. That's so true of a couple of films we're going to get to. I'll definitely say that. I I think this is a nice kind of like stepping stone film where you know. All the things here be, just become better in the context of different stories later on, especially with his next film. But I mean, the you know, I, I feel like his intentions weren't fully realized because, like, you know, it's part historical account, part social commentary, uh, a collective, you know, sort of study on race prejudice here and there, and I think it all kind of just sort of. You use the term melting pot. That's kind of what this film is thematically. Yeah. And that that's not always a strength because then you wind up you know, wondering what the overall intent was. But I, I didn't get a strong sense of that here. But, I mean, obviously you've got great character moments and great interactions. Um, and, you know, it, 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 obviously he has a passion for Mexican locations. Oh, and, yeah. you know, and that's <laughs> <laughs> clearly... So we'll, we're going to get to a better example of that, which you yeah. know essentially became a classic for the well, ages. Well, before we get to that one, you know, so Major Dundee is where reputations of Peckinpah, the difficult uh, person professionally, you know, it begins there, and so he was kind of a terror on set and, you know, had conflicts with Heston and was, like, berating people and firing people. I forget if he was drinking on set at that point, but he basically could not get hired again after Major Dundee. And he got fired off of the Cincinnati Kid. And I think think he also got fired off of the Glory... Is it, yeah, the Glory Guys, which he wrote, that's on YouTube. I did not get a chance to watch that before we recorded it, but I know he complained about the casting of the film ruining it. Hmm. But it has a few people in it that were, you know, uh, Peck and Paw regulars like Slim Pickens. Um, but then he did a, uh, a television production 
for uh, ABC Stage sixty seven, I think, and it's um, it's a it's a it's an adaptation of a short story called Noon Wine, starring Jason Robards, and um, this is actually something that you can get on the Twilight Time Blu-ray edition of the Killer Elite. Um, oh, it's really? Like this. Um, I guess it's like an hour-long uh, made-for-television uh, kind of melodrama. Uh, Jason Robards plays this farmer, and this kind of mysterious uh, Swedish guy shows up looking for work, and he hires him on as a farmhand. And even though this guy's like kind of soft-spoken and almost kind of on the verge of like real violence, <laughs> uh, you get the impression that like he could snap at any moment. Like he's a hard worker, builds the farm up, and. Um, but then uh, this guy comes to town that says he's taken the Swede away because he's like an escaped mental patient. And uh, Robards kills the guy. Um, and in, in a way, it's... He, he you know... Um, then he has to deal with, like, the town's reaction to this, you know, act of what he thinks is, like, self-defense, self-defense. For, his, yeah. for his farmhand. But it's, it's very sensitively told. It has a great... Uh, lead performance from Jason Robards. Um, it has elements that foreshadow even something like Straw Dogs, as far as like you know, um, uh, you know, self def- defense of your of your homestead, and uh, you know the um, man's capacity for violence. But it, it's it's that television program that kind of convinced people to take another chance on Peckinpah, the film director. Yeah, it was it was a critical hit. Um, you know, the I think it earned nominations for him at the time, and that's uh, yeah. I I gotta check this out. I don't know. Um, I didn't. I guess I'll check. It, I'll see if I can track it down or if it's on YouTube or something. Because I obviously, how can you not love Jason Robards and you know his work in uh, Ballad of Cable Hogue? Good lord. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it, it's like a, you know, it's a, it's a television production from the 60s. It looks like, I mean, like, I don't know if it's shot on eight, not, I'm trying to think of the, the, the format. Like, it looks, it looks like a television program. It doesn't look like, uh, you know, as attractively shot as one of his films. But it's, yeah, it, it's, it's an interesting uh, little short, short subject thing. And it's, you know, it's, it's maybe the best, well, I don't know, that and Cable Hogue are both really compelling uh, Robards performances, but it's, it's what, you know, got him back in. And it's not the first time that something like that got him hired again, because we'll get to another point where he was unemployable. <laughs> uh, but, uh, yeah, so the, the film that he comes back with is, of course, like his signature film. <laughs> yeah, um, I've, come a, I've come quite a long way from my original assessment of The Wild Bunch, because when I first saw it, I was just like, great action, very memorable characters, but it felt long, and I just, I don't know, I didn't get caught up in it the way, you know, its reputation seemed to make me feel like I should. I just kind of went, that was an, a very good Western. And, you know, obviously now, <laughs> now that The Treasure of Sierra Madre is essentially my favorite film of all time, um, rewatching it now, it's only grown uh, my appreciation for this film has only grown, particularly with how it, how it ends, um, and and the fact that I've you know since seen um, is it Robert Ryan? That's the yeah yeah yeah. I've seen more films of, of his, and I'm able to put like you know him as a person and his character in a different context at the very end there. So yeah. I mean, there's there's a lot to 
to tackle with the Wild Bunch. It's it's a it's a great film that also isn't my favorite of Peckinpah's filmography simply because there are more interesting films than this. I would agree with you. It's 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 in terms of why it was the landmark that it was. I, I think that it's something that is reacting in some ways to Bonnie and Clyde in terms of the way the violence is treated in that film. Yeah, they um, came out around the same time, right? Uh, I want to say Bonnie and Clyde was like a year or two before The Wild Bunch. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, 67 or 68, uh, but definitely not 69. Uh, I think it's 60... I want to say 67. Anyway, like, I think I know that Peckinpah was like eyeing the violence in that and seeing an opportunity to push Yeah, further. I need to step up my game. <laughs> right. Right, and, and and also like I said, you know that you know seeing that um, I, I forget if he actually tried slow motion, and it didn't work or not in in Major Dundee. I, I can't remember now, but I know that Wild Bunch is really where that style you know really takes off with him. Uh, and it's funny because the violence in that seems not especially shocking to me now, but I know that that ran into an NC seventeen rating even in the nineties nineties. I think. I mean, it, it, oh, wow. it's. It's funny to think of that film as being... I'm trying to think what is even so shocking. I mean, beyond the... I mean, I'm trying to think like if something like the John Woo films get X ratings, like The Killer. I guess it did. Um, I just but, think of Verhoeven's and like the use of oh, squibs, man. For sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, it's, it's, it's funny because it's... I mean, it is... Um, you know, it is like the... Um, let me ask you this. Do you see any political allegory being told in that? Like, do you see that as a Vietnam thing? To some degree, I do. Not, not, not necessarily... I don't know. It's, it's, it's certainly... You know, at the time it came out, I'm sure that... You know, almost like in the same way with rewatching something like Do the Right Thing Now in context of what's going on with racial politics and things. It's, it's, like, it's like reframing it at the, for the times. And you, you, can, you can go back and do that with any number of films from that era, including, you know, obviously something like Taxi Driver was, obvi- you know, like trying to comment on the loneliness of a veteran and what it can drive some unhinged person to do as a result of being in conflict. But, I mean, here it's... It really is um, sort of like, again, like the cultural melting pot uh, plays a huge factor in what happens later on in the film. Um, but, I mean, as seeing as like a, a group of guys going in to um, invade a foreign land and to wreak havoc, you can, certainly do, you can certainly make a parallel to Vietnam. I don't necessarily think it's um, a strength of the film in terms of its, of its themes, I just sort of go, yeah, I can see how people can perceive it that way. Yeah, I, I never I never see it that way when I watch it, but I've read things that try to make that argument. I don't even know that that's what people would have been responding to at the time. I mean, I guess, like, arming the oppressed underclass with rifles to take on, you know, an, an oppressive regime. I mean, there's, like, that certain... Certainly that, like, sociopolitical... Sure, sure. But that's not what people watch The Wild Bunch for. And it's funny because the, um, you know, he talks about wanting to make the violence more realistic and maybe has made some statements to the effect that, like, you know, wanting to show people, like, the real horrors of war, you know, you know, basically make the violence 
so extreme as to not be palatable and to really shock people. But what I find is that whenever filmmakers say that, like they, that they're making a statement about making violence so strong that it really wakes people up, those just become the new threshold for what people get off on in terms of explicit violence. That, that, that never teaches anybody any lesson. <laughs> and I think about, um, you know, anything from, you know, Salah, 120 Days of Sodom, or Natural Born Killers, or Funny Games, or even, I, I, I don't know if I ever really bought what Wes Craven was arguing for The Last House on the Left, but like any time that people say, no, I'm going to show you what real violence is like, and you're going to not find it entertaining, people find that entertaining. <laughs> well, yeah, 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 I know, and that's, it's the same, it's, it's weird kind of bringing this up, but I remember when my friends and I, in, in high school, rented the Faces of Death series just because we knew we were going to be confronted with this extreme violence and it's like it's it's real man you know and we're going to be so disgusted and and perturbed and you know we're like we actively sought this shit out and you know i, I you know it's 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 different when you're framing it in terms of uh you know a filmmaker and his artistic vision and what he's trying to convey with the violence but i mean i i think he just developed a stylistic approach and you got the slow motion. You got multi-camera filming and montage editing that's really... It has a rhythm all its own that I find really fascinating. Like, yeah. I, I, I think that's what stood out to me the most re- wa- or watching and re-watching these films is I think the intercutting is p- pretty groundbreaking. Yeah. Uh, you know, the intercutting between two distinct actions where you have a guy getting shot and thrown off his horse with the image of another guy getting shot and thrown off his horse and or falling through a window or just like i mean the the opening sequence and obviously the 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 ending battle is just like that is some of the best editing i've ever seen yeah well i i would say that thinking about what makes his his hits the hits that they are cuz you know yeah. th- th- there's there's only a handful that were hits and they are the wild bunch straw dogs uh, convoy and uh, and the getaway, and what do those share in common? Is exciting action. Um, yeah, and and the I would say that the Wild Bunch is the most successful in terms of like sequences of sequences of exciting action. I think you know there are films that are like more poetic mm-hmm. or more. Uh, idiosyncratic and like you know there are films that are like born cult films but the reason that The Wild Bunch became a not a huge success but a talked about like modest success because that's important to note also like The Wild Bunch was not like some gangbusters blockbuster film like it's it's one of those films that has a reputation that is much larger than it's like the same way like Goodfellas was not like a huge film but it's one that never goes away um, Wild Bunch is kind of like that. Um, yeah, I mean, I also think of the—I I think of some of the quieter moments with, you know, uh, William Holden's face, just like in, in a campfire scene with uh, Ernest Borgnine, or you know, Pike thinking these t- you know, drunken thoughts about loss and innocence while watching children's faces. That's another thing too, is that he he likes to um, cut to a child's face in the midst of all this chaos going on oh yeah you know and that i mean that happens early <laughs> on in this film to where it's like 
yeah, we get it, the death of innocence. <laughs> yeah, it, it happened so much by, you know, the time of things like The Getaway that I know that even some of his defenders are like, you know, somebody's been reading his own reviews. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Of, you know, in terms of that, that kind of imagery. Um, yeah, I think I, I, watching it again for this podcast, I put in my notes that it has... Um, maybe the most beautifully photographed animal cruelty <laughs> because it has the uh, the famous opening with the scorpion being, you know, alive by the ants, you know, and it has the uh, the uh, the beautiful image of horses falling, in, you know, from the the uh, the, the uh, shattered bridge. Uh, that's oh, one right. thing that, you know, beyond just the fact that uh, women get a rough ride in... Uh, Peckinpah's filmography, animals get uh, treated pretty shitty too uh, in a number of the films. Um, you know, Pat Garrett uh, also famously. But uh, yeah, it, it's at the same time, it's like if you can get past any innate moral revulsion to, to that aspect of it, it's really some of the most striking imagery of any of his films is in The Wild Bunch. Um, like it's something that really. Yeah, you know, there's just things you'll never forget in just terms of the uh, the visuals of it, um, and it, and the you know the, the 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 closing climax really is this kind of exciting, almost kind of crazed. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Of, I mean, with the way with the way our leads die, yeah. it's just oh, it's so visceral, and you kind of expect you know just the way this film is you know set up with. You know, it's 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 William Holden versus Robert Ryan, and of course Robert Ryan is going to be there to uh, take down the bad guy, and that's again like sort of that, that not necessarily defeatism towards the end, but just it's almost like Robert Ryan is resigned in a way, like oh well, I didn't get to do what I set out to do. Right. Well, it, but it's like you think about Ride the High Country and you compare it to this, and it's like another tale of a journey and friends slash rivals. And they're, you know, old gunfighters that are too tired. You're getting too old for this shit. Like, that same kind yeah. of cliche, it, it factors into this totally. Like, these, they're losers, and they don't want to be doing this, and they're, they're broken down. And they don't, but it's like, whereas, whereas Ride the High Country almost serves as like a Christian parable of, like, you know, redemption through death and, like, you know, self, self sacrifice. Self sacrifice. This ends in bloody chaos and does not offer that. And it's like it's like a slap in the face to the old films, uh, you know, romantic notion of how these things are resolved. Um, yeah, and I think that makes it a lot more contemporary. Like that's it's it's a new direction for the western to go, and like everything that follows in that decade, you know, whether it be McCabe, Mrs. Miller, or Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid, or uh, you know, whatever I mean, you know, you get all the way up to Heaven's Gate, like that kind of darker, more sinister side to the western. I mean, some of that is also informed by the spaghetti westerns, but I mean, I think that Peck and Paw's film was probably a lot more influential on that front. Yeah, and I, I obviously really, res- I mean, clearly Peck and Paw must be a fan of John Huston and Treasure of Sierra Madre because, like, the, just the ending too, the. Uh, you know the guy that asked Robert Ryan, "Do you want to ride with me?" has this like Walter Houston like laugh, <laughs> you know that I just oh, sure. like I just I just adore in that moment and yeah I you know it's it's a really interesting movie for its time and what it says culturally and it's it's a significant work in the Western genre and it's groundbreaking and you watch it and you know 
like just the the, the the rapid fire editing used to that extreme and to showcase like the violent nature of these battles was never done before you yeah. know and that's 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 worth you know praising in of itself it's also if you it's also the bridge between the classicism of Ride the High Country and the Deadly Companions and Major Dundee and then the kind of earthier, more eccentric, bloody, sexy, sweaty, you know, 70s stuff. Sure. Like Pat Garrett and Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia. Like, if you, if you want something that has really a lot of the best elements of both halves of the career i don't know if it's neatly divided in half but like it, it both those two eras like wild bunch kind of has aspects of both um that might you know that's another one that is like a pretty good gateway or entry point for peck and Paul because you can get more classical going backwards or more contemporary and radical going forwards but that really kind of I, I, I know that there's a school of thought that says that's his masterpiece i've never felt that connection to it but i understand yeah, that's exactly I how I feel. I understand why. You know who was not a fan of the Wild Bunch, who made uh, some of my favorite westerns, including one that you mentioned earlier? Uh, Howard Hawks had a really funny comment about the Wild Bunch. Hmm. Um, he said, uh, I can kill four men, take them to the morgue and bury them before he gets one down to the ground in slow motion. <laughs> <laughs> that's, yeah. I can understand. I can understand them. I can understand there being detractors of that style. You right. know, I mean, in, in, in the same way that I'm, you know, I'm, I'm struggling. To, I mean, okay, John Woo. I, I'm sure people can make fun of that, or it's ripe for parody. Obviously, with doves. <laughs> I was gonna say, <laughs> you know. So I mean, I can understand people having that response of instead of being like, "Wow, that's pretty incredible and cool," you know, they can roll their eyes at it. But I, yeah. I, I watch it thinking it's pretty incredible and cool. Well, it's funny because, like, so so the Wild Bunch, you know, before it was even out and making the impact that it did, Peckinpah was already kind of quickly moving on to a totally different kind of project with the Ballad of Cable Hogue. I think was something, <laughs> I forget if that was something that he was actually trying to get made before the Wild Bunch or not, but it's like something that he... I think he, I think he was, yeah. Yeah, but it's it's something that I know is kind of closer to his heart than the violent films that he's famous for. Yeah, wasn't uh, the, didn't he say this is his favorite from his career? Um, he did say that. Um, I don't. I mean, he definitely went around saying that a lot at college campuses and places when he was doing like you know retrospectives of his work. He always would push for that one to be screened over things like Wild Bunch and Straw Dogs. Like that's and that's telling because I think that on some level had this or Junior Bonner been the kind of success that the getaway or the wild bunch was, I mean, he might've had a very different career. I know around this time he wanted to direct a film that ended up being one of my favorite films of that period. It's not a very well-known film called play it as it lays. Um, oh, I need which, to see that. It's Joan Didion, right? Yeah. It's a Joan Didion film directed by Frank Perry, who did last summer. Uh, and the oh swimmer. shit! I gotta see this. <laughs> yeah, it's um, yeah, it's it's a very interesting film. It it comes and goes from YouTube. It's never come out on home video, to my knowledge. It might have had a VHS release, but uh, the producers were, you know, Sam Peckinpah. Fuck no! I mean, like, you know, that that guy is a macho Western director. Like, he would not be the right fit for that material. And I always wonder what he would have made of that material because it's it, it feels like nothing like what you know Peckinpah from for, for the one thing it's like you know female protagonist which I don't think he's ever had <laughs> well, well what's, what's crazy is like I, I, you know watching Junior Bonner I, 
I see very little trace of Peck and Paw in that film, and I don't. I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing. I th- I just think it's like it's so subdued and it's such a simple character study or a family study, uh, you know, family dynamics and things like that. Oh yeah, that's well. just really like, yeah. I just it's it's just strange because. I think people were like, "Give us blood, Peck and Paw." After what you just, you know, uh, you know, your crowning achievement was the Wild Bunch. Now, like, you know, keep giving us that. Maybe that was the thing. Is like, you know, he sort of fell into a niche, and people were expecting something. And he kind of, maybe he was just the type. Like I said, he's he comes across to me as antagonistic, but maybe he just wanted to subvert people's expectations with what he chose to chose to do next. Well, I think that. In, well, we'll get to Junior Bonner, but that's also coming. In the wake of Straw Dogs. And right, like, exactly. In both cases, it's like him rebounding from something quite heavy and, and, and dark and, 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 you know, with something more gentle. I think with Ballad of Cable Hogue, it's one that, like, I, I enjoy. I, I enjoy it less than the first time I saw it. Um, I don't... Well, we, we talk about this. I mean, what, what was your... This is the first time you were seeing it, right? Yeah. This, what, what is your impression of it? It's interesting because the first half is kind of like this romantic sex comedy in the old west. And then, <laughs> and then the second half comes and you know it's about standing one's ground or the death of the frontier and it it, it has like a, a complete sort of tonal shift to some degree. Right. Well, we 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 didn't talk about this but the death of the frontier is something that crops up in a couple of films i mean as far as like the automobile being like this kind of horrible symbol yeah Um, technology yeah well ride the high country and the wild bunch both have elements of that and 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 it literally spells the death for cable hoag's whole operation (laughs) right right exactly um yeah i i think it's good i mean what stands out for me again is Jason Robards, an actor I've always loved. Yeah, and it's great to see him carry this film, and it's it's just great to see him in a, in a different genre that I'm not used to seeing him in. But um, yeah, I mean, it seems to it seems to me like he he still believes that there's something worth fighting for. There's something rich about the desert, um, and yet you know he's also kind of a hermit that loves the isolation of the desert, far away from the civilized world, and like you mentioned, technology is the enemy but there's also a, a really unexpected sort of cutesy love story involving a friendly prostitute with a heart of gold that kind sure. of uh i guess it's fine i mean i didn't i wasn't i, was, I didn't find it off-putting necessarily it was well, just it's unexpected it com- well it comes so close to uh like the next year i think is when mccabe mrs miller flips that whole stereotype on its head oh, so sure. it feels like yeah. very quaint Almost instantly, uh, but it is like, you know, this kind of celebration of the entrepreneurial spirit of the old west. And I forget which extended member of mm-hmm. his family he might have been basing this on. Well, I don't know if he wrote it, or, but I, I know that like that that informs a lot of his affection for it. Um, is that it is kind of this feel good film, even. You know, I, it has like a downbeat ending, but I think that sure. you walk away from it ultimately with this really, you know, it's like this um, uh, loser makes good, like you know, it, you know, and it has like elements of like the of the more violent westerns with like the uh, the two uh, more threatening partners. That I mean, you know, that echoes the Deadly Companions and also Ride the High Country as far as like did you, you know, did you get a sense of chemistry between the two of them? Because between. I, the between between Robarts and Stevens, 
It's shaky. Yeah, that's kind of how I felt too. Yeah. Um, I mean, and I don't think that as a as a body farce that it's necessarily that funny, um, which hurts it, I guess. But it's also it's such a gentle natured film that I don't. It, I I feel like it's a likable film, but I don't think it's. I I th- I think that you know people might respond to it just because of the um, the Robards performance being so compelling. I don't know that it's right. a uh, secret masterpiece in his filmography, but I think it's because it because it wasn't a success and because it has like these appealing aspects. I think people sometimes can be overrated a little bit. But I, I, I it's definitely likable film, but it, I I don't think that it's I I I, I think that it, it you know. Compared to Junior Bonner, which I think is underrated, I think that Battle of Cable Hogue is... It's interesting in that what it tells about the other side of Sam Peckinpah, that, you know, never he didn't have the opportunities to really explore that very often on film. Yeah, I mean, he, he clearly, you know, didn't want to make... He didn't want to only make movies that rely entirely on violence and gunplay to tell their stories. You know, and I... I admire that intent. I admire, like, just... I want to branch out. I want to try something different. You know, I want to tell a love story, but still have something to say about, uh, you know, the death of the frontier. And, um, you know, I, 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 I just think, like, it didn't strike me as the most consistent of his career. Uh, but not in ways, like, I think are bad. It's just... It has its moments, but overall I found it to be kind of slight, but yet there's reasons to see it, clearly. Yeah, and I can understand, again, you know, I can understand why people do have affection for it. And it's not that say that I, I don't have some affection for it, but I, I think that it's surrounded by richer films in all directions. <laughs> yeah. Okay, and now he goes back to giving us the extreme side, the dark side, the violent side... Um, another exploration of masculinity gone awry, more yeah. or less. His first and contemporary film. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, very true. Very true. Good point. Um, you know, uh, I will admit, like, okay, <laughs> let's let's open with basically erect nipples, pretty much in the camera. It doesn't. I don't know. I, I on one hand, like, I, I appreciate just going for broke and, you know, the male gaze in full effect. Oh, yeah. uh, or, or, you know, like even just children's gaze uh, in full effect there, sort of giggling and stuff. And, you know, um, and I know it was a different time, too. It's like I I realized, like, even Dustin Hoffman, I think, comments at one point saying, why don't you wear a bra? Well, but, <laughs> the, thi- but the thing is, is that, I mean, it's it's his it's his neuroses that are, you know, shaping so much of it as far as, as far as her sexuality, that, yeah. that exaggeration of the nipples, right. It's like feeding into, it's all part of how he's seeing it. I think. I right. Think it, it, Straw Dogs is the first Peck and Paw film that I saw. I rented it on yeah. videotape as a teenager. It was in the horror section of my local video store. I think it was in mine too. That's probably why I, I saw it. Uh-huh. Yeah. And it's, you know, I rented it not knowing anything about it. I was—I did not really know much about Sam Peckinpah or even Dustin Hoffman at that age. I was, you know, it was kind of young. And um, you know, the, the, we'll, we'll get to the, the most controversial scene of it. But that's the scene that I remember thinking as a teenager turned me off on it because I thought it was sending a very bad message. As I've gotten older, 
I find that message fascinatingly complicated. Um, and I think that this is kind of a great film, but it's a film that you can totally be thrown off and call it fascist or evil if you don't if you if depending on how you take that one scene so it's kind of fascinating in that way um, yeah it's it's a subjective a completely subjective experience where you will like somebody complete completely argue this film is trash and maybe I'll buy into it if you have a good argument for it and I know this this also comes you know you could probably do a whole bonus episode on the, the the types of films that Ebert outright hated, mm. and um, and yet for some reason Last House on the Left gets a pass. You know, I think I've I've always had a difficult relationship with films surrounding revenge and catharsis. Uh, you know, and that's that's something like I I think I might have even seen Straw Dogs and Last House on the Left. In the same week, yeah. when I was young, and I rented them both. It's uh, that'll be a whole other story for when we talk too. Is like just the the video store I went to was a mom and pop video store who really did not uh, adhere to the policy of <laughs> okay, let's check your ID to make sure you're 18 to check out these R-rated films. But that'll be for another time. Right. I um, I just I, I just remember my my initial reaction was of complete discomfort. And I really did not like either film lingering so much on the rape. Uh, Last House on the Left and Straw Dogs, that is. I felt like it was not necessarily exploitive, but just let's make you so uncomfortable by making this last so long kind of a thing. Right. You know, in, in, in the same way that, like, God, Irreversible probably cornered the market on that. Um, <laughs> that's, yeah. when, I, when I saw that, I was... I, I, Literally, just I said no. I I'm sorry. I can't. I can't do this. I'm sorry. Well, well you think about all right, so you think about when Strog Dogs is coming out, 1971, and this is the time of A Clockwork Orange, of The Devils, of Deliverance, of um, Last House and Left is the following year. Um, but so so Straw Dogs is coming out in a sea of. You know, this is right after like Midnight Cowboys won the Oscar. Like, it's 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 a major sea change in terms of adult content in mainstream film, and like, there's a whole bunch of films pushing the envelope. Bound to Valley of the Dolls also is around this time. Um, uh, you know, it, it, the, the rape revenge thing. Straw Dogs is a curious rape revenge film because Hoffman's character is oblivious to the rape ever yeah. happening. It's yeah, not exactly. really the point at all. Um, what and I don't know if we've even really done much synopsizing of what these films are about. I assume that you know listeners would 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 you know have have seen some of these, but like Straw Dogs. Yeah, I I prefer to bypass just like the the plot synopsis because I'm hoping that most people have seen these films by now. Yeah, well, Straw Dogs. I mean, it, it, I, I've read so many different interpretations of what it's even really saying because I've I've heard some that are saying that it's. Like the uh, a critique of the liberal intellectual who is ultimately not committal sociopolitically, so he's he's in England to avoid Vietnam um, and doesn't want to get involved in any of that messy business. He wants to just work on his math problems and um, and the fallacy in that because of you know him ignoring his brutish nature when his 
uh, domicile is, uh, you know, infringed upon. It's also, I mean, a comment on, um, or is it a comment? I don't know this interpretation, but like the... uh, slightly older man slightly younger woman kind of thing and like once the uh, oh, really? the hot once the hot sex wears off what are you going to talk about <laughs> and like that kind of tension because they are not like he can try to like get her to learn chess with him but she can't work his math problems out and she gets restless and bored and you know she's around like the young men from her teenage years and like that's kind of more where she's at you know in terms of like what she's what she really connects with when she's kind of isolated with this guy that she doesn't really have a meaningful connection with outside of the physical um so it becomes it becomes who who do you sympathize with do you sympathize with his paranoia about having a loose woman for a wife or do you sympathize with her because she's got a kind of a snotty prick of a you know limp dick intellectual husband you know like you know it, it, the, the the values of the film it's not clear who you're really rooting for and that's what makes it a little bit because you can read your nightmare version of it and be well, offended by it i uh i don't i don't sympathize with anybody and i find that to be a fascinating experience for me because there are times when uh, I'm mad at Amy, and there are times when I'm mad at um, Dustin Hoffman's character, David. I'm just, like, I understand his desire at that point in time to assert himself and say, I want to protect my home. This is my home. I want to defend it. Um, You know, he wants to make a stance that he normally doesn't make. He wants to be confrontational and aggressive. Um, But it gets to such an extreme to where he's slapping his his wife around um, right and that that's that's where it loses me of course where it's like you know i want to get behind this i want to get this behind this like as like a you know a, a revenge a, a, a catharsis for him but once he gets to that extreme i'm sorry i, I i'm not with you anymore but, i i but, but i don't want him to get killed um, but, either but do, but do you think that the film is on the side of his catharsis that's a good question i don't I, it, it's such a gray area kind of a film. I but I part of me wants to think that maybe it is maybe knowing Peck and Paw a little bit more is that he is kind of punishing him for being limp dick wishy washy man without yeah. without um without that assertive masculinity. You know, he's just kind of a passive bore for the most part. That's just doing what he's doing and not really um, showcasing some sense of agency in the world or taking taking action most of the right. time. Well, I mean, the thing is, like, is he condescending to the common man who's the laborer on his house? Or is he... It seems like it at times, but... Nah. Or, but or is, you know, he justified in thinking that these are a bunch of drunken louts that, you know, will come in and take a beer and, you know, not... Like it's 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 unclear, you know. It's the same thing. It's like something like Clockwork Orange from that same period. It's like you know, people they get off on the transgressive aspects of it. So whether or not there is an intellectual argument being made is almost beside the point because that's not really what people engage with about it. Yeah, you know, get, you know if it's a commentary on. And Last House and Left is the same way. Like you know, if if it's a commentary on like you know. In that film, um, 
the parents are no better than the Manson-esque kind of gang because they're both capable of pure sadism in the moment. Um, I don't know that audiences walk out thinking, interesting, isn't that an interesting thing? They're, they're thinking like, did you see when that guy got his dick bit off? Like, that's crazy. <laughs> yeah. well, you mean, know, is, like, is it that, justifiable that, sadism, I guess? Right, you know? yeah, th- because... On some level, you know, and we were talking about drive before, you know, we started recording, like, or even Taxi Driver, like, whether or not there's a motivation that's artistic, people get off on seeing the worm turn, because it's a passive thing, you know, especially cinephiles, you know, you know, especially cinephiles, I think, you know, do a lot of vicarious living through movie characters, and I think that seeing someone that's alienated in any respect turn the tables on their aggressors is always going to be, you know, a winning formula. Uh, I, especially I agree. If, if, especially if it's done artistically as, as, as someone like Sam Peckinpah at the height of their powers is going to make a well-directed, suspenseful, uh, atmospherically rendered kind of take on that material. Um, but whether or not you agree with his philosophies, you know, depends on what you think those philosophies are. I mean, I saw that remake of Straw Dogs, which uncomplicates the rape scene, and it really gets into trouble when it tries to remake Peckinpah beat for beat, line for line, but gets interesting when it deviates from Peckinpah. Um, and this is a whole other thing. Well, that, like, I mean, yeah, that's, that's what remakes should do is deviate, I think. Right. Well, I mean, and just in, in a nutshell, what that does is it transposes it to contemporary South, uh, you know, tech, I forget if it's Texas, but it's, yeah, it's, it's the South. But it's like a Hollywood type versus like a, uh, you know, an intellectual mathematician. He's a Hollywood screenwriter. It's a little too on the nose. But it's like the, uh, that same kind of thing is like that kind of <laughs> um, liberal, coastal, uh, atheistic kind of protagonist in like kind of a rednecky church going small town and that kind of tension it's a different kind of tension but it's the same thing but it's and it, it you know hits the same beats but it does it, it uncomplicates the rape because the rape sequence is the reason straw dogs remains super controversial because it's two rape scenes in one because yeah. because yeah. it is it is a man taking her by force that's an ex-boyfriend and she gives in and gets off on it at some point or gets off despite herself. Um, and that's what people get freaked out by because, you, because, because you know, it's, it's rape and it, it's, it's something that should be treated seriously and this could be seen as making a statement about women and rape that is uncomfortable because, you know, it's that one character. It's the same kind of argument you can make for something like Blue Velvet. Like, women don't, in general, like getting <laughs> slapped around by their partners and, you know, beaten. Uh, that one does, you know, and this one does, you know, and that's... It, it, I don't know. It, you, you could say that it's a comment on, like, her frustrations and lack of passion in the, in the marriage, and so that there, there's something primal and unspoken about it but it's at the same time it's uh you know that whole no means yes kind of thing is a very loathsome thing to consider and you know and if that's what you take away from that scene then you could be out of the entire film for good at that point which i would completely understand um yeah. i'm trying my best to reframe it and thinking that she's trying to dissociate from the shock of what's taking place and decides whether if it's biologically that's kind of what 
your body is telling you to do uh, to to get pleasure despite what's taking place or if she's really um like I said, trying to reframe what's what's happening in a positive way so she can bear it in that moment. I think, I think you're you're bringing up a good point in thinking like, well, she's with an ex flame, and she doesn't have the kind of passion in her current relationship. So maybe she's just trying to make the best out of what's happening, which is I know it's a complicated thing to consider. Yeah. Because you know it, it is, she's being taken by force, and to see that is really uncomfortable. Well, but at the same time, it's like, well, shouldn't she do what she can in that moment to cope with it? Well, it's funny because like Sam Peckinpah, like for all of his machismo, you know, and um, you might think that he identifies with the rapist. You might think that he identifies with like the macho, assertive, like, no, I'm taking this woman now. <laughs> kind of thing like i don't you know i know that she means yes ultimately you might think that he responds i think he responds personally to hoffman david i'm sick of it if you don't let them have what they want and i'm going let me go Uh, very caveman-like behavior, and he doesn't want to acknowledge that it's happening. And he wants to avoid it. He wants to avoid. He wants to avoid conflict. And we've already established he's avoiding Vietnam. He's avo- He's trying to yeah. avoid conflict even here. Um, so, but at the same time, it's you know, it's it's an ugly, it's an ugly scene, and it, you know, it, in a way that it. Um, it's something that's hinted at in the way that the the uh, the marriage in Ride the High Country suggests, you know, suggests that kind of uh, dynamic, that that dynamic like that women to be shared, and like the way that the second rape occurs, and the second rape is played uh, as pure horror, yeah, and she's not into it, and so there's the distinction between two different types of reaction to rape. That's also something that makes people crazy. <laughs> I know because you're going from one emotional state to another, essentially, and it's jarring. Right. I mean, the and whole movie sh- is, is is jarring throughout. I mean, like I will say, like the first maybe even up to like the cat getting killed. I guess it, it's kind of a slow burn in, in establishing the the town, the characters, Dustin Hoffman and his relationship. Uh, the marriage, of course. So, I mean, it, it's like there's a lot of establishing going on, a lot of setup. Um, so we get familiar with all the different dynamics between the different characters. And so yeah. it takes a while to get to the shock. It takes a while to get to the um, unco- discomfort. But I, I will say this. It's, it's a journey into human violence that isn't a thrill ride. It is tension-inducing. It's a pressure cooker. It is a visceral experience. By the time we get to the inv- the home invasion, I 
am freaking out. Like, I think that enti- the entire sequence of once the shit hits the fan, basically, and I am going back and forth between the two of them, between, like, okay, if I have to resort to violence to protect my home, fine. But I'm also siding with her thinking, why don't we just get rid of this guy? Because that's what they want. You know, this, this the guy that's sitting on the couch who could be a pedophile, essentially, and, you know, is hinted at as, well, we actually see that he's murdered somebody. Right. But they don't know it, I guess. Uh, By accident. Know it. Yeah. By accident. I mean, it's not, I mean, he's not like a, uh, I mean, he, he's, 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 he's more like a Frankenstein monster. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, it's like, and that's interesting too. It's just like, he's going, he's going to his wife. Why don't you care? You know? And, but it's also about self-preservation. You, 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 if you have to get rid of this guy to pre- preserve your own life and your home, then part of me is like, yes, that's exactly what you should do. But then that's like the unempathic part. It's just like, okay, get rid of this guy, let's protect ourselves, and that's that. So it's it's an interesting back and forth, but it's also a really intense, f- menacing sequence of uh, home invasion. Home invasion in general just really gets to me. It, it, it makes me squirm because it's like, oh, you feel safe in your home. You feel protected. There's security. There's locks. Um, right. And then all of a sudden, it's, it just becomes this giant predatory beast of men drunk on power and rage and just wanting to, you know, assert their masculinity in this situation that is yeah. really uncomfortable. Well, it's funny because, I mean, if, and this is the first non-Western of the Peckinpah features, but if you had made it a Western, it would, the, the echoes to Rio Bravo would be more apparent as far as the, you know, uh, the, the invasion aspect and, and like, you the know, claustrophobia. Being, the claustrophobia. Yeah. And I mean, I think, you know, I mean, this, this kind of sets the stage for everything from Last House and Left to Assault on Precinct 13 to all manner of rape revenge films. But the, uh, I mean, and this is also like a, uh, around the time that Night of the Living Dead, you know, talking of like, you know, claustrophobic home invasion uh, horror from outside, you know, would have only been like still kind of like gradually finding its, you know, its audience over time it, that's like 1968 i think um but the um yeah i, I mean this when the home invasion stuff kicks in it's really effective uh, it's and it's and it's it's after you've been through such unpleasant violence that this becomes feel good violence just by default because it does not have that sexual menace um, and yeah, but it's at the same time, it's like it's not rape revenge because it's not her revenge, it's his revenge, and it's not even like like it's not he's being but we're, but, but he, we're an audience members aware of the rape, and the men that are that conducted the rape are in this situation, so part of me wants that. I mean, that's right. kind of what the joy of movies are sometimes is. Uh, just you get to experience the catharsis that you don't get to experience in real life, and obviously you don't want to kill people. Most people don't, I hope. And yeah. you get to watch it play out on screen to where you know, and that's kind of you know a whole other subject that you can go on a tangent about too. But just you know, when I first saw the movie Happiness with Todd Salons and my sort of, I wouldn't say prejudice, but just complex feelings about pedophiles um, right. were really confronted head on. He humanized the Dylan Baker character to a point where I was feeling sorry for him and crying and realizing, like, these are his desires that are out of his control. I should not chastise this person for being who he is. 
And you know, here it's like, okay, I want to see the, I want to see that fucking guy who raped her to, you know, wind up in the, uh, in the trap, uh, the, <laughs> the animal trap. So that's some, that's, that's just like an interesting experience I have watching movies like this where there is just constant internal conflict about getting to see that cathartic violence taking place and whether if it's justified or not. Um, and I get that same sort of uh, d- difficulty when watching Last House on the Left. I don't know if I'm supposed to be rooting these par- rooting on you know the parents to do what they do because part of me thinks that's justified, or if it's you know just essentially saying, well, the parents are just like these killers, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well- so. I mean, this is also the same year as Dirty Harry, I think, isn't it? And so, like, the vigilante aspect of it and, you know, feel-good revenge, I mean, it's interesting to sell it to liberals because it should be flying in the face of liberal values to have mob mentality as, you know, the... Uh, yeah, I mean, law and order and, and the system should be what, you know, we you know are rooting for. But it, it, in, in, in a way, I mean, it is like a, a liberal... It is a liberal revenge film because I mean he is watching out for you know, his fellow man as part of you know what is kind of you know the, the idea behind like he's protecting somebody. It, it, it isn't simply just a might makes right kind of thing. Um, I don't know. Yeah, it's, and- it's, 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 a, it's a complicated film in that way, and it's I, I think that that I think the questions it, it arouses are, are, are what makes it so compelling. But at the same time, it's like I understand. I understand why the ideas are a major roadblock for a lot of people. Yeah, I, I would say that. I mean, honestly, at some point in the future, it would be nice to examine this film for an entire episode, maybe even pair it up with Last House on the Left and yeah. have like almost like a panel with like Patrick and Heather Drain and yourself or something to yeah. sort of just explore what these films do to us, what they say, what we think they say, the uh, sort of audience reaction at the time, like the general response, like there's just so much you can go on and on about when it comes yeah. to Straw Dogs. When well, it when it's all said and done, I I do think it's a great film. I do uh, admire it for a lot of reasons, many of which we brought up. It's not something I actively want to rewatch. <laughs> yeah, because it's not I, pleasant I, at all. Yeah, it's funny. I I mean. I could definitely do a whole podcast just on Last House and Left, which is a film that seems to uh, swing back and forth between praise and condemnation every couple of years, it seems like, with everyone I know. I mean, it's it's a pretty divisive film, you know, to this day, even just among my peers that are fans of, like, horror and exploitation films, let alone, you know, the, the general public. But um, I don't know. Straw Dogs... It's definitely a fascinating film. It's an odd film in the filmography of Sam Peckinpah. I mean, in terms of it being set in England, contemporary contemporary uh, time frame. And you know, so then the next film is also another contemporary film. And this one is one we've just... Uh, we mentioned casually already is uh, Junior Bonner. Um, Junior Bonner... Is um, it was it was a Steve McQueen vehicle uh, as a rodeo uh, rodeo rider uh, returning to his uh, small town, kind of uh, kind of beaten up by this occupation, 
are kind of a drifter, kind of a little bit of a loser, but like a charismatic local hero t- sort of loser. Um, like he, he he's somebody that um, has come come into uh, you know connect with his family and kind of get his life together. And his 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 one brother, played by uh, uh, what's his name, Joe Don Baker, uh, has become kind of a successful local businessman. But it's it's a kind of film where. There's no villains, but he comes the closest just because what he does is so practical and so far from the romance of the West. And even though it's a contemporary film, I think I think the reason I love it so much is because it's just a... Um, there's this kind of... A, uh, a, a, like a sweet kind of Americana feel to it. it it's, it's a film that... Yeah, especially when they're re- hanging out at the bar and stuff. Yeah, well, it, it's a film that is... I think a lot of times small town middle America is condescended to in films because it's kind of depicted as having all of these very backwards values on, you know, uh, sociopolitical matters, I guess. And, you know, it's, 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 it's interesting to see that some of Peckinpah's, uh, certainly Convoy, you know, I think part of the reason Convoy was a success is because it is so flattering to that part of the country. (laughs) Um, and Junior Bonner is not quite as um, dumb as Convoy. <laughs> so oh, I think no. that, that makes it a lot easier for me to connect it. And it's also a really effective use of, of, of Steve McQueen and his kind of stoicism as an actor. Oh my God, you're taking the. It's funny because, like, I have, like, I always have a couple of sentences to a paragraph, and um, you're taking the words right out of my mouth. Well, yeah, yeah. So this is, the first time, this is the first time you've seen Junior Bonner, right? <laughs> so what what was your what was your reaction to this one? You said that you know you, I know that you said that it was a uh, hard harder to maybe recognize it as as purely peck and paw just by how different it is. Yeah, I mean, what you're saying though about the Americana and his respect for it is definitely apparent, and I think that's that's a strength of this film overall. But I'll I'll, I'll go on record and say something controversial. Steve McQueen's stoicism doesn't grab me. Mm. And I wish it did because I feel like it should because th- there there are there are portrayals of stoicism with you know incredible actors that are revered you know even even going all the way back to someone like like John Wayne where it's like I'm very accepting of it I'm very um, attuned to it and I, I I I can understand why it is so revered and why he is so revered Steve McQueen is someone that I think gets he's a little too passive sometimes and like he's got this internalized rage that um you know is underplayed here obviously for obvious reasons because he's not one of those uh you know crazed criminals running amok in this film but i think um i I think it's just a very simple film where i don't necessarily feel the connection to the lead as much as i should but I love Ida Lupino and Robert Preston. Like yeah. I've, I've, I mean, obviously my 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 love affair with Robert Preston began with Last Starfighter, and uh, <laughs> right. and ever and ever since then, like anytime I hear him talk, there's like a smile on my face. So it's great to see him in a western um, as Steve McQueen's father, 
And so anytime he's on screen, I'm delighted. Like, at first I was worried because I'm like, oh, I hope he's not going to stay in the hospital the whole time. It's just like a father and son relationship that takes place at the hospital. But gladly it wasn't that. It really... Once Steve McQueen gets on the horse with his father in this film, I'm 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 delighted. I'm I'm invested. I really like the film. I think it. I'm, I think it's really about the interactions and relationships and the the not necessarily the family dynamics, but the town itself and the relationships here that really make this a special film in his filmography. But I don't. I don't get that like hoorah sense of I want to see Steve McQueen triumph at the end uh, with his final rodeo. It doesn't really he doesn't instill me with the everyman sort of quality. Oh, yeah, no, he doesn't. It, you, you in a sense you barely get to know him, uh, and that's what yeah. I think is kind of interesting about it because like, as a character study, he he reveals very little <laughs> uh, as a character. So it's it, but it's. So you can kind of you can project things onto it, or just observe that he's not giving a whole lot, and find it a little bit um, too devoid of a story. Uh, I mean, I definitely understand both sides of it. I mean, I really that's that's the kind of film that I can enjoy just as a hangout movie. Because, yeah, no, sure, I could, but, but it's but at the same time, it's I'm aware that it's the kind of film that if you don't kind of settle into that vibe it, you could get restless with it because i watched it again with that in mind just because this was not a um i mean it was mismarketed as a steve mcqueen action film and you know the few people that saw it were like you know that's not very action <laughs> um i don't know i think i think um it's as a total about face from the savagery of something like straw dogs it's kind of it, it's I don't know. I mean, there's not a lot of films I can think of that are quite like it. In, well, not from Peckinpah. I'm trying to think. Like, it almost reminds me of something like some of like some of the later Peter Bogdanovich films or something, where it's just. I mean, I don't know if you ever saw um, is that that thing called Love that um, that one with River Phoenix uh, and uh, Dermot, Dermot Mulroney and Samantha Mathis, Mathis from Pop of the Volume. You know, that's a movie I should love. I love that cast, obviously. I don't, well, I don't really like it very much, to be well, honest. Well, it's an uneven. I think that's an uneven film, but it's the same kind of film where it's sure it's it's it's, a, it's an Americana film. No, that's a good comparison. I can see that. Yeah, um, and I think that this does a little bit, but th- this just feels like it, it almost feels like they've really just captured a real town that's in action and just put their characters into a real town. Like it feels very authentic to me. I, I don't know why I that's find true. it. I, I don't know why. I mean, it's just. It's it's a sweet film along those lines, but it's yeah. I mean, I I, I love it, but I, I I I it's hard to really put into words what makes it so compelling. Other than just like I like the way he handles, like it, 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 it the melodrama never gets too. I, I like melodrama too, but the, the melodrama in Junior Bonner really is very laconic and low key. It, it's just kind of a bad atmosphere, um, and atmosphere is. A big reason uh, that my favorite Peckinpah, which we'll get to in a little bit, um, is, you know, what takes it over the top for me is the atmosphere. Uh, And I think that... um, So, McQueen enjoyed the experience of making that film, even though it was not the success that either Peckinpah or McQueen needed. And they needed a hit both uh, quite badly for the next film, and they decided to have one. Uh, And that was The Getaway. Yeah, really quickly though, with mm-hmm. uh, with Junior Bonner, I love the retort between um, 
Ida Lupino and Robert Preston when she uh, sort of is telling him off while, like, I think they're um, they're like hanging out um, on a staircase in the back of of their home or something, or at least in the town. It's right outside the bar. Yeah, yeah, right outside the bar. Right, right, right. And I think she says something like. As far as I'm concerned, you can go to hell or Australia, but not with me. And then he says, "Well, they're both down under." I love, I love that. <laughs> I love that so much. Yeah, yeah, and, and that away might, with words. That, that might be the strongest interaction in the film. Is, the, yeah. is their scenes? Um, because yeah, I, I, I love Pino's fantastic in that. Uh, film, yeah, I need I, to see more. For I know she was a, a prominent director too. That uh, oh yeah, she's a great director. Yeah. Uh, that's um, that's a whole other story um from about her career early on but yeah no i mean yeah. let's get to the getaway because it's this most conventional sort of genre film that yeah, well, uh, i find to be fine yeah and and that's a uh who's it jim thompson who wrote the novel oh I right think, yeah I, yeah i think he yeah did. and it's also a uh, pretty famous director wrote it uh, walter hill did the screenplay for that one yeah yeah, and you can and you can tell. I, I mean, that's, I mean, here again, like his strengths are really the uh, action sequences and chase sequences here, and the actual awesome. heist is really, really well executed. And that virtuoso opening, yeah, that the editing of that of the whole opening is is you know a major tour de force in the uh, in the Peck and Paw canon. The, you know the way that that's cut. Um, but Ally McGraw yeah. is a, is kind of the femme fatale. I don't know. I I didn't really get a strong impression from her in this film. Like there was uh, like almost like too much of a detachment here. Um, and again, McQueen. He's it's it's maybe it's also why I never really got into James Bond films where there, it really does feel more like a cipher and someone who you know is probably just going to get away with everything anyway. <laughs> that like yeah. I don't get. I don't get a whole lot of complexity, but then again, this is not a movie that requires a whole lot of character complexity. It's really just about the fireworks. Well, yeah, but it, I mean, that's true. But the there's a couple of things. I mean, one one thing is, and we'll get back to problematic aspects with women, you know. And no doubt, with the getaway, with the getaway. I mean, I think that there's certainly a lot of contemporary viewers that will be checked out the second he slaps her. Um, but it's also an interesting contrast to the, the... So there's two relationships at play with men, with, like, you know, awful men and their, you know, their women. Uh, because you have the, 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 the McQueen-McGraw dynamic, and then you also have... What is that actor's name? Oh, it's on my tongue. The, uh, the villain that's pursuing them. Um... Uh, uh. It's bothering me now. I know uh, it's not Ben Johnson. No, no, Ben Johnson is a heavy in it. Right. But Sally Struthers is abducted by uh, what is this guy's name? Hold on. I know. I know. <laughs> but so, but so you're you're getting these parallel depictions of a savage man and the woman that loves him, and you're. You're looking for the distinctions between what makes one horrible and one your heroes. Uh, and it's a little tricky because there's definitely some piggish behavior with the hero of, of the getaway. I mean, they're not, I mean, they're anti heroes. I mean, it's, it's, it's funny because, like, both the Wild Bunch and, and the getaway are like 
reacting to the huge success of Bonnie and Clyde in a way. Um, and this one even more so because it's, you know, murderous lovers on the run kind of, kind of story. But, um, I don't know. It's, did you find the name of that actor? <laughs> Al Letary? Is that it? Al, Al Letary. Yeah. I think so. He, he plays, he plays Rudy in this. Yeah. 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 It, um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's a, it's an effective, not exceptional, like, uh action picture i mean i see why it was a hit you know it, it the, the peck and pot touches are in like the troubling you know male female dynamic and also in that romanticizing of mexico as the place you get away to <laughs> um sure you know with, with a really charming slim pickens as your driver <laughs> yeah nothing wrong with that i mean it's i think um it is exact. It plays out exactly how I expect this type of action crime movie to play out, and maybe it's just because, like, oh yeah, I've seen this done many, many times before. But with his sense of confidence behind the camera and his his penchant for you know extreme violence or j- just the occasional shock here and there, it's it's you know it's it's really strong for like just his take on a genre chase picture. That I th- I think is fine. I, I, I it's not one of those like I can in the same way that we can probably talk about Straw Dogs for nine hours. This one I can talk for about ten minutes and be okay with. <laughs> yeah, well, the getaway. I mean, it's it's a professional job made by someone that wanted a hit and yeah. saw an opportunity to have a hit. In, in a way, it, it's almost. I mean, you think about something like Ocean's Eleven in Soderbergh's career, and like that's not. That has a joy to it that is different from The Getaway, but it's the same kind of like, I see, you know, a fun thriller. I know I can make this work, and I'm going to make it work. And it's, it's, it's a job for hire, and it's not, you know, really ultimately that important, probably for the filmmaker. Right. I mean, he, ca- <laughs> he definitely captures sort of the barren wastelands of Texas very well. Um, and, I mean, I can, I can see, like, just McQueen as kind of, like almost the charming aggressor type to be compelling to carry you through the film. Whereas I, I once again, I, I, I just have a detachment from, from him as an actor. And I, I keep hoping like that's going to change because clearly some people consider him to, to be the epitome of cool. Right. And, um, you know, I've seen bullet and I, I do enjoy that film obviously for the, for the car chase. And I, I don't know. There's just something, He's not one of those leading man actors of that era that really I get excited about seeing. I don't know. Yeah. Well, no. I mean, and and obviously, Junior Bonner and The Getaway are really dependent on how one responds to McQueen. So it's yeah. In, <laughs> in my sense. world, in my world, the whole movie Junior Bonner would have been about uh, the father. <laughs> yeah, and that film would be interesting too. Sure. <laughs> um, so The Getaway was a big hit. Um, it was his biggest hit up to that point. And uh, he followed it up with something that feels a lot more personal. And, Absolutely. Uh, he, he, he battled with the, uh, was with the head of MGM? I forget. Um, he, 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 battled, he battled with the system <laughs> uh, throughout the production. And, you know, the film ultimately came out in a mutilated cut. Uh, this is Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid. Um, this is my favorite 
Uh, I won't, you know, I'll just be right up front with that, uh, of, of Peck and Paul's career. And I understand, you know, why not everyone's going to respond to this one, because uh, it is kind of the leisurely pace. It's kind of more laconic. It doesn't have as many, like, action set pieces. It's not, like, as viscerally as exciting as the Wild Bunch, probably. But uh, it's just, it has, like, this... Um, this like sea of interesting character actors uh it's got this kind of affecting melancholy like i i mean you know right the you know uh ride the high country and the wild bunch both are like elegiac death of the west kind of westerns but this one really feels like it to me of the of the of the of the three like this one feels like the most uh, mournful of it uh yeah. of the passing of that time period and of, of all of the um, friend slash rival dynamics, you know, in the various Peck and Puff films, this one feels the most tragic um, in a way that I respond to. And it it also feels the most new Hollywood, um, it, you know, because I respond very much to the revisionism of something like McCabe and Mrs. Miller. And this mm-hmm. has a lot of things that remind me of that. Um, the way that the Bob Dylan soundtrack kind of reminds me of the way they use Leonard Cohen in, in McCabe and Mrs. Miller. And um, clearly... <laughs> also, the, also the cast name Chris Christopherson because this is the first time they work together and I feel like he gets underrated as well I don't even know that he's necessarily like, like a really tremendous actor but he's such a likable compelling star personality in movies man I, I couldn't I, agree more I think that when he's in anything, whether it be Cisco Pike or Bloom and Love or working with John Sayles later or working in Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore, um, even that Star is Born uh, remake, like he's always a very likable on-camera presence. And I think that having him and James Coburn and Harry Dean Stanton and Slim Pickens, we'll get to that scene. But, like, you have, like, all of these, L.Q. Jones, you have, like, Peckinpah himself shoving up with a coffin at one point. <laughs> you know, you have just this, I don't know, it, it feels like the ultimate Peckinpah film in a way that, it almost feels like the way that Nashville feels like the ultimate Altman film in a way. Um, because it's just like this, it's just this sea of characters and, like, this mastery of tone and atmosphere that even if you don't have the most story momentum you feel just comfortable being in that world with those people um and and if you like the more downbeat melancholy storytelling this one is the most downbeat and melancholy of the peck and paw films um this was your first time seeing it right yeah and i i will watch it many 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 times throughout my life i um i i concur with the melancholy that sort of permeates this film and it's funny because as I was watching it not realizing who wrote it I did think of Tulane Blacktop oh yeah you know and I just think of like the understated sort of complicated dynamic slash friendship that really how you know how I kind of describe even though they're very different films this and the next film we'll talk about are like the epitome of Peck and Paw. And to me, they embrace what I think of um, as romantic fatalism, where there's, mm. there's beauty, there's melancholy, and there's almost like an acceptance in the fact that the glory days are behind us. And, you know, the, you're, you're, you might even meet your demise, but that's okay because 
you've staked out this legend behind your name. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's, it, it, it is a pursuit of sorts, but I think like both characters are um, struggling within themselves with their personas that they've sort of instilled throughout their lives. And um, I just think like throughout this entire movie, I'm my jaw is on the floor with how music is used and the locations. Um, and, you know, and when people are gunned down, it usually isn't the middle of a glorious battle. You know, they're sort of like ambushed unexpectedly. Right. And I think that's that really, you know, the, the fact that some of these sequences come out of left field is really, really powerful because you're, you're, you do spend a lot of time with people just interacting with one another and to have confrontations come out of left field is really, um, is really something I, I responded to here. But, um, I will say that a flaw for me is the casting of Bob Dylan. I don't think he's good. That's all. <laughs> yeah, no, he isn't good, but he's, <laughs> he's not uninteresting. <laughs> Uh, even if he is uh, a weak actor, and I mean, I I, I couldn't argue uh, that he is, but he's it's a peculiar element <laughs> to the film. James Aubrey, the head of MGM, is the name, by the way, that I was searching for as Peckinpah's adversary. Oh, in the okay, making of this okay. Film. Um, but yeah, no, I, I it's funny because this, I mean, this is like a revisionist anti-Western, well, not anti-Western, but it's a revisionist Western from someone that could make ride the high country like this is this flips it you know um and it's rare that you have someone that can do both <laughs> um that can pull off the straight western and the uh you know the uh, the opposite way of, of approaching the material i, I think that it's I, I it's funny i've watched both of the two cuts there's because there's at least three cuts i know in circulation sure there's there's the original theatrical cut which i've never actually seen um, I don't even know that it's distributed on a home video at all. I think even the video cassette was the. Um, I don't know that you have a director's cut, but they had like a preview version cut, and then they found other scenes that re- were restored. Because Peckinpah, I don't know if you know this story, like arranged to have his preferred cut stolen from the lot. <laughs> they they hijacked his cut, and that which is why we even have it at all. Like they they stole it oh, from wow. the studio. Um, but there's a scene. Let me ask you this: I, the version that you watched, is there a scene where Pat Garrett goes home and has like a uh, a scene with his wife? Interesting. I don't think so. I don't Does, recall that. Yeah, that scene is the major addition to the. Uh, I don't know if it's a. I'm trying to think what year it is. There's, there's the, the, the two disc DVD that Warner Brothers put out like maybe 10, hmm. 12 years ago has the preview version and it has this other version that is like the preview version, but certain sequences are rearranged. The first gun battle with the um, Billy the Kid's gang is slightly recut. Like certain shots play out longer. I watched them side by side. I had them playing one on uh oh that might be fun to do sometime i never thought of that yeah with these different cuts that might be fun to 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 try out yeah i i did them side by side just to see what the differences were and the major difference uh other than some rearranging of the order of things is the um is the addition of the scene where coburn's character um 
interacts with his wife, and you can see that hmm. he's he's reluctantly professional, and I think that Peckinpah himself, you know, as a professional, kind of romanticizes the outlaws and was always kind of positioning himself as an outlaw within his own business, which was ultimately professional suicide. But that that kind of affection for the rebel and, you know, just the guy, devil-may-care outlaw with his friends, getting drunk, getting laid, going to Mexico, being free. Like, that's something that's totally romantic to him. And, like, the guy that sells out and does does a straight job, he's not a villain, but he's defeated by this in some way. And he's it's a tragic thing for him. I think that that complication is what kind of makes it different from the Robert Ryan character pursuing William Holden's gang in the Wild Bunch. Like it's it's a lot more nuanced than the Wild Bunch in that same dynamic. It's less about you know the raucous killers and more about that sadness. Yeah, I can. That's that's definitely true. I think the version I saw was 115 minutes, but there's a maybe the version with that extra scene is 124 minutes. That's not so. even that long a scene. I don't even know that's... Ra- it shouldn't be too different in the, in the running times, but it's... Yeah, I, I, but I don't know. Maybe, I, maybe I'm misremembering it. It doesn't feel like a lot longer um, because it's just that one scene, I think. But yeah, either version is great. I mean, it's not like, you know... Um, I, I haven't seen the shorter version, which, you know, nah. was fa- famously panned. I'm not ever really that curious to see it. It's like, you know... I. At some point, I'll probably watch that altered version of Brazil, but maybe I won't. <laughs> you like, you know, like there's just some things like, yeah, well, it's nice to have the option of the butchered cut, but why would you ever really watch it that way? <laughs> there, man, I mean, this definitely contains some of my favorite peck and paw sequences. The jailbreak. Oh yeah. Um, I mean, and just like even when he confronts the final guy, and then breaks the gun. I just, I don't know, like, that whole moment, too, where, I mean, first he shoots the guy in the back, which is kind of like the ultimate Western taboo, a, a, sh- a complete shunning of your victim, and a sure. complete sign of disrespect. And then, you know, the guy out there that he's about to shoot just sort of, like, realizes, well, he's about to kill me next, and he sort of says it aloud, because, some, like, like, there's some um, people standing by. And they kind of go, oh, no, he just shot uh, the deputy or whatever. And then (laughs) the other guy goes, well, he's about to shoot me next. And that's like, I don't know, something like that. That whole exchange is really great. Um, He he also shoots him with a a whole bunch of nickels or something. And like, uh, it's a Schwarzenegger. Keep the change. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) One liner. Yeah. No, Uh, that's yeah. That's man. That that whole moment is great. There's. You know, um, a moment where Garrett sort of exchanges some some half-hearted gunfire with an unknown guy, like out on a on a yeah. raft. I think that's yeah, that's really interesting. I love that scene, and like that yeah. scene is in a different place in with each version. So when I was watching the um, the preview version, I'm like, oh man, I can't believe that they didn't have that scene. But like, oh no, it's just later in the film. But uh, like even just like scenes of like of Christopherson on the horse at twilight, you know, there's like just all these really pretty kind of cushion scenes that like just are there to kind of bridge, you know, more traditional, uh, drama. Um, and of course, you know, we're both big fans of the slim Pickens scene. That, um, that, yeah, I mean, 
well, <laughs> that oh my god! And it's funny because like I think Peck and Paw and the screenwriter went to like maybe Bob Dylan's hotel room or even his apartment, and uh, you know Dylan's like, "Hey, I've been working on this new song for the movie. What do you think of it?" And it's knocking on Heaven's door. <laughs> Just yeah. like, oh, okay, that couldn't be the more perfect song for that scene and. It is just so beautiful and sad, and everything about it is just perfect. That Slim Pickens death scene is one for, like, the not only just a, a clip party, uh, but it's just it's just one of the great moments in in film history. But, but it's also, I don't know. This is, I, I don't know why I'm making so many random uh, comparisons, but it's almost a way like. Something like the scene with Sherilyn Fenn in Wild at Heart affects me. Where it's like you wouldn't even need it to be in the film at all. It's just this sad, beautiful moment that is totally beside the point. Yeah, because like, it's not a character we've been spending. Yeah, a lot of it's time a character with. we've. It's 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 just, and it's so moving. And it's like, why is it moving? Because it's like we've just met this guy like five minutes ago. Right. Exactly. I don't know. That's just it. It's like there's. There's yeah, just you could, some beauty you, to it. <laughs> like you could bring you could bring other Slim Pickens roles to it if you want, but in terms of what it really means for Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid, it's really it's just this beautiful throwaway moment. Um, but it's so affecting. It's like you know, it's seen that people always remark upon when they talk about that film. Oh yeah, um, and it's with good reason. But it's just kind of like. It doesn't have anything to do with Pat Garrett or Billy the Kid. <laughs> yeah, I know. And it's like, you know, sort of how you bring maybe just your your feelings about Slim Pickens as an actor or... I, yeah, like, it's, it's crazy to get emotional for a character um, that, you've, that you've hardly spent any time with. And yet, for some reason, I, and I know this is an odd comparison, but... The straight story with Richard Farnsworth, like oh, yeah. now, now that's a that's that's a character actor that I I'm not that familiar with. That I I mean I maybe have seen him in supporting roles like in Misery or a couple other films, yeah. and throughout that entire movie, it feels like Richard Farnsworth is coming to terms with his age as a person, as a human being, and I'm like I'm kind of a wreck through a lot of his moments like re- recounting a story in the bar or by campfire to a complete stranger like i i wind up feeling really choked up based on like well what this man has must have been through as a person not just like what this character in the movie has gone through right so i think like you you bring a lot of that to to even just a moment like the death scene we're talking about here and and we'll you know just briefly talk about uh what are your feelings about just the the final confrontation here because it i, I don't want to say it's anticlimactic but it's not like the big shootout no well i think it's telling that he shoots a mirror yeah and which yeah, is something yeah, that yeah, peck yeah. and pa apparently really did and which i don't even know if that was in the script or Coburn just saw him doing it. I forget, and it's hard to really know sometimes what people kind of embellish in their tellings of the makings of certain moments of films. But it's definitely, it's fascinatingly anticlimactic in a, in an action uh, scene sense. And it's but it's not about that. Like it's about how horrible it is that he finally. It's like <laughs> it's the most reluctant pursuit. <laughs> you yeah. know. It's anti-catharsis, like, almost. 
kind of yeah but it's it's because it's 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 killing off a part of his life that he really cherishes you know it's not uh, really yeah. you know it's 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 i don't know it, it's that's what's interesting about it is that another kind of filmmaker would make it about Billy the Kid and his adventures and his outlawish ways, but it's really about Garrett and about his um, bitter acceptance of just the way things are changing and the way you know society is changing, the way the way making you know it's no longer a, a fit land for the Billy the Kid type. You know, it's now about professionals and business and you know corporate interests and that whole thing it's and you know you can you can feel it in peck and paw that this is this is tragedy um i don't know it's it's coming to terms with that tragedy in a way it's like there's almost like an acceptance of it it's like yeah you're sad that this is happening and you're like killing off a part of yourself that has existed for so long but it also seems like a resignation like I, I, re- I resigned myself to do this, and this is what I'm meant to do. And uh, there's there's something satisfying about just not having it be this big sort of orgiastic, climactic confrontation that you're used to from something like the Wild Bunch, of course. Right, which would feel totally wrong. Yeah, I, I, and you know, and I don't, I don't, I mean, I don't know if that version that we know of Pat Garrett and Bill the Kid if that had come out if that would have made a difference because it's not like a you know it's funny we mentioned hawks before and this feels more like a hawks film to me in that it's a hangout film um than something like the wild bunch or ride the high country like it feels the more like you know you're in those bars with those guys you're in those just villages you know you're you know, spending time with them. And it, 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 I think, you know, the Rudy Wurlitzer screenplay, I mean, you know, you mentioned Tulane Blacktop, and it's also, you know, what else did he do? Like uh, Glenn Aranda and uh, something else. That was, I, I think he did some uncredited work on Coming Home, the Hal Ashby film. Oh, right, film. yeah. But, um, but, yeah, it's, I don't know. I mean, I don't, I don't know how much... Peckinpah still kind of... I know Peckinpah was still kind of an authority, you know, figure over him in terms of writing it because he made him rewrite the script so that... Because originally the script, they didn't meet until the end of the film. Like, you never saw any scenes with Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid together. And he made him do that whole beginning where they they do have some screen time together before the the melancholy conclusion. Um, which makes more sense dramatically. I think. I think his concept is interesting as an idea, but it's it's um, you know to, to have them just as separate storylines until they intersect at the very end. I mean, that's interesting in theory, but I think it's more emotionally satisfying to do it the way they did it. But, as emotionally um, satisfying and uh, almost tender that this film was. Talk about a flip of the coin, a complete 180. Oh, yeah. A, um, a nihilistic kind of fever dream in some regards. Now you're reading my notes. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, it's funny because like I, I recently, just, just for the hell of it, and pro- it doesn't really mean anything, but on my letterbox, I changed my, my four films. Not because they're they're my ultimate top four favorite films, but they're, they're four films that have recently made the strongest impression on me that 
I can't wait to study and just rewatch, listen to commentaries, and explore further. And those four films are Killing of a Chinese Bookie, Point Blank, Night Moves, and Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia. That's a lineup. <laughs> that 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 okay. That's my dream film festival. If you ever get to program a festival and just want to have me come down for a couple days, that's what I yeah. would do. Because um, yeah. I want to talk about these movies with people. It's just uh, this movie really blindsided me. It's it's like a Peck and Paw mission statement. It's Warren Oates playing Peck and Paw, from what I gather. Um, which kind of makes sense, and it's also the one of the few times that the studio did not fuck with them in any way. Yeah, which is odd because it's the one that you would think that any sane person at the studio in nineteen was it seventy four would have been like, we need to fuck with this one especially. Yeah. <laughs> what the hell is this that we've received? I don't even know um, entirely what it is. Well, I just you know, love funny. it. <laughs> well, it's funny because like when I was a kid, my family had a book called the fifty worst movies of. Is it 50 worst movies ever made? 50, first films of all, 50 worst films of all time? Something like that. It was the, um, the Medved brothers, Harry and Michael Medved. And like they had... It's a controversial book because they have things like Robot Monster that are like these kind of like, uh, you know, schlocky B-movie sci-fi kind of things that, you know, sure. Mr. Science Theater types. But then they also have Last Year at Marienbad. And they also have Zabriskie Point. And they also have Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia in the book. And that's how I first heard of it as a kid. When, you know, and it's like alongside all these kind of camp things. Um, because, as you know, the original reception of the film was disastrous, with, with one or two exceptions like Roger Ebert. Um, and I think I saw it at the time that it was a, like... I think by the time it came out on DVD, it was like asserting itself as kind of like a... Um, it was it was experiencing like an upswing in terms of respectability to the point where it's now the major cult film within the larger Peckinpah cult, and it might even have a separate cult because it's so different in a lot of ways from The Wild Bunch and Straw Dogs and Pat Garrett and Ride the High Country. Like it almost feels like the kind of film that you could sell fans of Alejandro Hodorowski on, you know, <laughs> or. Uh, or Werner Herzog, or or killing a Chinese bookie, like these eccentric genre things that are really experimental character studies that just are full of bizarre gallows humor and unpredictable plots because they just feel like you know you you, you evoke the the phrase fever dream. I mean, the, these feel like very hallucinatory kind of films, and so it's. Whether or not the condition Peckinpah was in kind of informed that way of, of telling the story. And also, he was working with, like, Mexican crews um, that he's not normally accustomed to and, you know, drinking on the set. Like, it's, it's, it, he, it's, it's an interesting film that, like, reflects a very fra- frazzled kind of man. And I think that that also informs a lot of people's reactions to it because they can feel that it's a very personal kind of film, even though it is incredibly bizarre. It's very uh, reflective of the lead character. It's like we're in the mindset of somebody hell-bent on self-destructing and yeah. embracing that wholeheartedly. And it's not a mindset that I understand or identify with, but I found it just endlessly fascinating from somebody who loves studying psychology and human behavior and just like watching somebody kind of lose their mind mm-hmm. and deal with trauma 
um, and just constantly struggle. But, you know, obviously he sort of sees this quest of accomplishing this one task as something that's going to define him in in some way. Otherwise, he wouldn't be doing it. It's just something that, you know, against, again, there's like sort of a romantic fatalism behind this quest. And, you know, he. it's also, a, a, you know, he t- touches upon it in the same way with Straw Dogs, just the male-female dynamics gone awry. And, again, there's a, a rape sequence here that um, is questionable. It's. I mean, I, I certainly don't... If I were to pick one thing that I do not like about the film, it's it's simply like, let's just linger on her breasts, because he does that extensively for extensive periods of time, and that I don't think it's necessary. Um, sometimes you should just shoot from the head up. Um, just imply, just imp- okay, she's naked. We get it. You don't have to just linger on that because it, it does feel kind of creepy to some extent. Um, but again, she sort of says, oh, oh, it's like she has the most agency. It's like she just says, I've dealt with this before. Let me deal with it in my own way. And she express, she like goes from, you know, um, she goes back and forth between the Madonna and the horror within a scene. Um, with Chris Christopherson in that moment, and that's really uncomfortable to to see again, and in the, in the, not in the same context as Straw Dogs because it's a very different film with a very different uh, marriage. But it's certainly a scene that you sort of have to think about a little bit further rather than just dismiss it as like Peck and Paw, you know. Uh, making a statement i guess but i don't know yeah well it is a tricky scene and i think that even even in the um the, like the historian the uh the biographer commentary track on on uh bring me the head of alfredo garcia there's not even really a consensus on what that scene is saying or what you know if it works or if it's saying something troubling i mean it's 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 that one is you know next to the straw dogs rape scene and the straw dogs has been seen by more people so it has more arguments but i would say that it's it's equally um tricky to make out what he's trying to do with that scene because um she she is calling the shots and she is ultimately going with this man to save his life to save uh Bernie's life. Mm-hmm. Um, she's using sexual like she's controlling it, but it's you know it, 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 again. It's it's I don't know. Not every moment of that scene plays that way. Uh, yeah, yeah. So it's I don't know if it's a if it's them not finding the tone or them just getting off on the ambiguity of it. But it's it's definitely a tricky. Uh, it's a trickier rape scene for me to completely justify than Straw Dogs, but it doesn't take me out of the film. It's just the fact that it's a problem I find interesting just because I, you know, it's, I don't, I, I don't know. Uh, it, th- that entire film is, is one that I just kind of go with from scene to scene. And that just is a bewildering moment, but it's, you know, in, in, in a film where like someone is talking to a severed head, you know, it's not the most bewildering moment. <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, it's, I guess it's like to showcase some emasculation and just, oh, sure. you know, and just, you know, Benny is this guy who 
really thinks he knows himself, was really kind of self-assured for the most part that if he accomplishes what he needs to accomplish, you know, he'll get some money, he can settle down with his woman and basically live the life that he's been wanting to live. And, you know, and but again, like, maybe that moment is there to serve like a crippling of expectations on his part that, you know, things will go his way and things are meant like, you know, there, there is a, a relationship here that's grounded and that's something he, he can sort of depend on more or less. But at the same time, he also is struggling with the fact that this, this woman that he, he has such strong affection for had an affair with Alfredo Garcia. Yeah. And you know, that's, you know, it's, it's, it's almost like how I feel with, with Lost Highway as being like, you know, this, this movie that's sort of commenting on emasculation and what does it mean when essentially the woman you love is promiscuous and how that affects you um, as a man. Like, does it mean you, um, you know, lack the masculinity or just the ability to be uh, as attractive to your partner as you want to be? Um, but, you know, I mean, that that's a whole other conversation for another time. But I think, like, here, Warren Oates gives one of the best performances maybe I've ever seen. I just, I cannot begin to tell you how much I love him in this movie. And there's a scene in the, in a grave where he was essentially buried alive to die and crawls out and realizes what's happened to the woman he loves. That's just like, oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, that that is some of the best acting you'll ever see. Well, such a shocking moment in terms of the narrative too, because it's sure. such a you're not expecting great, it. It's 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 very unexpected twist. Um, yeah, I know. I it's funny. Bring me the bring me the head of Alfredo Garcia is is a film that I like a great deal, but it's it's one that I feel a little bit on the outside of the cult following for it. Um, and I don't know quite why that is. I, I, I mean, I... Well, it's kind of an enigma. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, well, it's funny, because I, I was comparing him to Altman earlier, and in a way, I feel like this is his three women. Um, Ooh, yeah. That it, in that it's like, this film that was kind of not really... I mean, it was it, it got some attention, but it was not as widely seen as one of the, the major films at the time that it came out. Um, I mean, three women, you know, won Best Actress at, at Cannes for the two leads, and it got some good reviews. But for the most part, it was not a commercial success. But now, it's there's a contemporary quality to it that has kind of kept it in the conversation more than some of his bigger successes at the time. Uh, and Alfredo Garcia is the same way with Peckinpah. Like this one gets way more attention and discussion than The Getaway or. Uh, you know, Ride the High Country, or even Convoy, which was his big hit. Like, this, this is maybe one of the most top three popular films, you know, that he made. I mean, I'd, I'd say, like, next to Straw Dogs and The Wild Bunch, it's the most popular today. I just think um, it mirrors his mentality, maybe as a person in general, but I definitely think at the time, like, he was struggling with cocaine and booze to such an extreme extent that he made this, like... I don't know, bizarre, like, you know, like a canvas that he just, like, splattered paint all over Pollock style. And when uh, when a director goes for broke and just doesn't care sometimes, like, sometimes that rubs me the wrong way. And sometimes it just, like, everything about it seems to convey 
uh, a, not just like an audacity to me, but just a, a, a sense of I'm going to do what I want to do, and here it is, and this is it. And I get that from beginning to end here, but it's also smeared with the, like this nihilistic rage uh, just that's like, oh, it's so off-putting, but yet so magnetizing for me at the same time. Where it's like, I'm not, I, I don't, I don't feel nihilistic at all. But to experience a character who is, you know, essentially is just like, you know, I have nothing left to lose. Let me do this. I'm going to do it. You know, it play, it does play like a, a movie that maybe Tarantino could have made. I mean, honestly, I would like to see Tarantino's Jackie Brown in the Old West. Much like how you mentioned with Pat Garrett, and maybe even if Tarantino decided to sort of cut back from the the, the sort of violent outbursts he's done with Hateful Eight and Django, I think I think it would serve him really well to just go ahead and have a simple, quieter sort of uh, you know character mood piece set in the West that would be like, let's just hang out with these great characters for a while. You know, and yeah. I think I, I I feel like he tried that with Hateful Eight, but he, you know, like his just his genre expectations got the best of him, and he needed that catharsis and the and the violence and the social commentary, which is fine yeah. by me. But yeah, I I I mean, I, I can only really speculate like on what Tarantino's ideas are for what I mean. I I think on some level, I think he, I think I think the ambivalence of his hardcore fans to Jackie Brown unnerved him because nothing he made since then really kind of reminds me of that <laughs> yeah no that's true i think he's even gone on record to sort of say that the the guy who made jackie brown isn't really there anymore yeah well i think he i mean this is a total side I, th- I think that he feels like a little bit of irritation of the the film critic film comment type crowd that thinks that's his masterpiece. I think he would be more likely to say Inglorious Bastards is his masterpiece. I think he actually literally says it in the dialogue. Yeah. Um, I'm really, I really am surprised that Peckinpah said that, you know, the Ballad of Cable Hogue is his favorite film because Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia was, there was no studio interference. It feels like just a, a pure gopher broke statement from somebody who was kind of unhinged at the time. And I guess Warren Oates chose to convey that, you know, and just, like, essentially mirrored Sam Peckinpah for that role. Well, well, Cable Hogue was not a film that was, like, littered with studio compromises and tampering. I think that um, that really betrays a much sunnier side of him than... Alfredo Garcia, I know he was proud of, but, I mean, that's... That's like a howl of rage, and that might not necessarily be one that you always feel like reliving for college campus kind of appearances. Yeah. Maybe for all my nice qualities, I I occasionally side with or understand just like that howl of rage. The howling wolf of uh, cinema, (laughs) you know, is, is, is embedded through this entire film, and it's just like... And also maybe, you know, after something like what happened in Orlando, you you do lose faith in humanity. You do start to question like, well, you know, where where is the compassion? Where is the humanity? And when 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 horrible shit happens in the world and then you see like a movie like Alfredo Garcia, it sort of justifies like, yeah, we're all going we're all going to hell. That's all there is to it. <laughs> yeah. I really don't feel that way deep down, but in a moment like this movie can sort of reflect just like yeah this is it we're doomed (laughs) 
I, I might as well just go out, you know, in a blaze of glory with bullets behind me. Yeah, I think I think as affecting as I find the the War Notes character uh, in in Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia, I think that there's something that feels almost more like a demented fairy tale to that film. That yeah, well, I, I appreciate it as its own kind of surreal ride. I mean, I don't want to make it sound like I don't really like the film because I really do. I mean, I've seen it several times, but it's it's one that I feel like a less emotionally engaged with than some of his more straightforward films so i appreciate it more for its audacity and for its craziness <laughs> um it, it just feels like a different kind of thing it's like i mean if you compare like the coen brothers you know it's like you know, like you know some people might prefer the the uh the more restraint uh like blood simple or fargo and then some people like it when they get crazy like you know like the Big Lebowski or Burn After Reading or like things that are like a little bit more wild. This feels more wild. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. I mean, at the same time, I do get like a sense of, um, I don't know. I guess like pa- it just a, pa- pathos. Yeah, that's the word. I get. I get a sense yeah. of pathos when he's in the grave and after what he's just experienced. Like he just built up this idea of getting a bunch of money and you know going away with this woman as like. Well, that's what's that's what's going to make me happy, and now he realized, well, I'm never going to have that now. And I think, like, I, yeah. I, 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 I don't necessarily like understand that because I'm not that hopeless. But I guess if you know, if if the person that you love the most is is lying in a grave next to you, it, well, of course you're going to feel that uh, you know scream of rage. And uh, yeah. yeah, it just it, it feels really real to me, despite it being a completely surreal, almost a Palma esque kind of experience. Yeah, well, it's funny because, like, I mean, you compare it to the, the ending to The Wild Bunch, where it's, like, both end in, like, these kind of, like, gory death wishes, you know, for the characters that just know they're going to die, and they don't care. Yeah. Um, I mean, in one, you know, like, The Wild Bunch, like, there's, like, a righteousness to it. Like, we're going to go out, you know, all guns blazing, literally, you know, in this righteous kind of way. And, and, and then Alfredo Garcia, it's just, like, it's just welcoming the void you know like it's 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 just like you know it's a it's it's a much more suicidal kind of take on that same kind of ending um i don't know it's 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 a really compelling curiosity and and i is as much as there are things to like about the later peck and puff films like this is the last one that kind of goes in the in the top shelf this should yeah. have been his last film. I mean, I'm not saying like, okay, end your career, you're done. But in a way, this could have this this could have been his last film with how it ends, and it just yeah, you know. And I don't know. It, 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 I think I've talked about that in past episodes, where like in my mind, I like to think of, you know, when a director like Robert Altman dies, like their last film is like their just parting statement but you know you just never know when somebody's gonna go so that's not humanly possible but yeah it's just it's it's so disappointing um despite not having seen cross of iron where he went after this um after such a high point in his career i you know people didn't consider it a high point at the time but to me, it's it, 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 <laughs> to put it, it, to put it to put it, to put yeah. it mildly. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, like the, the killer elite. I mean, the the rest of them we can kind of go through briefly. Although I think the Osterman weekend's really fascinating. Yeah, um, well, the kill, the killer elite. I mean, is a, a uh, Robert Ludlum adaptation, and it's where he discovers cocaine. 
you know, in his private life. It's James Caan and uh, Robert Duvall, and it has elements of the new Hollywood thing in the way that they're riffing, you know, at times. It feels like very improvisation, but it also feels like Peckinpah thinks the script is dumb, and he's, like, encouraging them to make light of it. <laughs> yeah. I think that there's a, there's a certain kind of smart-assiness to it that is not... It's kind of fun, and it's also kind of like I, you know, this this is helping it make less sense if you had just taken it more seriously. Um, it has a lot of great sequences in it. I think that there's a um, uh, pretty affecting kind of thread through as far as like the rehabilitation of the James Conn character after being nearly, uh, you know, crippled for life. You know, after you know being betrayed early in the film. Um, but there's also ninjas that, in, in, in a way that makes it feel very silly. <laughs> yeah. You know? Um, I don't know. I mean, it's a film that, like, I watched as a rewatch on the new Blu-ray that came out through Twilight Time. And I remembered, I remembered it so badly that the only scene I remembered didn't actually exist. Like, I remembered something with them in a helicopter, and that's just not even in the film. <laughs> so, like, I, I, it was almost like watching it from scratch, you know. Yeah, and that's it has nothing when to it do- happens, yeah. Yeah, it's also nothing to do with another film called Killer Elite that came out around the same time as the Straw Dogs remake. And I was like, what the hell? Why are they remaking everything it wants from Sam Peckinpah? But it's just the same title. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 disappointing, you know, with a setup like, you know, being betrayed by your friend and partner and left for dead because I'm autom- automatically like, come on, make this like your point blank. <laughs> but that's not going to happen yeah. here because oh. it is a complete sort of... Um, Pulp fictiony genre exercise of sorts, yeah, and uh, it's it's pretty forgettable. I mean, you have actors like James Caan and Robert Duvall. Obviously, you're going to be compelled to watch them interplay. Yeah, well, well I, and, and actually, at the beginning of our talk about this film, I misspoke. It's not Robert Ludlum. Robert Ludlum wrote the uh, the other espionage. Oh yeah, Osmer Osmer Weekend. the Osmer Weekend. Um, what I was going to say is that. Um, it, it, it reflects a certain kind of paranoia in Peck and Paw, you know, in terms of like uh, maybe his frustration with professional life that he's in, you know, as someone that has been betrayed so much in the business, in, especially in his mind, you know, I think that like the, what James Kahn is dealing with as far as like uh, corruption within his own industry, you know, I think, I think Peck and Paw is definitely pushing those aspects for personal reasons while, you know, in theory, just doing a professional assignment and like, uh, you know, I mean, it has it has some action sequences that are really strong. It has some performances that like, yeah, th- I mean, there's things about it that work considering its reputation. It's not terrible. It's just it's kind of boring. I mean, I mean, like, it, 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 it's. I feel like pacing becomes an issue here, but I mean, it's it's fine. It's not something like you need to go out of your way to see. I mean, if you're a fan of these actors, obviously you'll be interested, but I mean, it's, it is what it is. It's one of those movies where there's not a whole lot of complexity to it. Yeah, no one gets raped and no animals get hurt. <laughs> those are nice things about it. <laughs> yeah, every once in a while, it's good to see a movie where, where animals aren't harmed and, and people aren't raped. Yes, um, although... Uh yeah, no, no. I was gonna say, like, at one point, like a a, a, a virginal young Asian woman kind of flirts oh. with him, and he's kind of like, you know, he's very dismissive of her innocence. <laughs> but, uh, but so, yeah. After that, which was kind of successful for Peck and Pa, like that surprising. was surprising. 
I think it came in with a PG rating, and I think that they kind of like sold it, like they pushed it hard, maybe as a Christmas film or like a holiday season film. Had big stars in it. I mean, Khan and Duvall were both post Godfather in their careers, and um, you know, I mean, it was a programmer kind of action picture. It mm-hmm. was not making the same demands of people as the last couple of Peck and Paw films, but it was not like a, you know, uh, super uh, successful film. Um, but it, the film that he made after uh, was Cross of Iron, which I know that you didn't see. And, and briefly, this is like a um, like a British-German co-production. Uh, it was made in Yugoslavia, I think, and it deals with like German soldiers in Russian-occupied territory uh, in World War Two. The fact that it's dealing sympathetically with Russian soldiers in World War Two. You know, it wasn't that far long ago that that, you know, (laughs) it was just like a risky thing that I think kind of ran into trouble just for that alone. Um, Has pretty impressive cast. James Coburn is in it. Maximilian Schell, James Mason. Um, So is this like Peckinpah's The Big Red One? Is that that's kind of what I gather? It's a little bit like that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it's his only straight up war film. It has moments that are poetic and interesting. It has it has claustrophobic dialogue scenes kind of like in the in that that feel like a little bit stagey. Um, It's it's got sequences in it that are really powerful. It's it's of the later films. It's the one that has the best reputation. Um, in I, you could you could make the comparison to Samuel Fuller for sure. Um, I don't know. I think that um, it's 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 it it deals with like and it, it, it has like some some problematic women stuff in it. Uh, but but in a different kind of spin on it because like they uh come upon some uh Russian women soldiers and. Uh, they get a little bit rough with them, but you know the women turn the tables quite quite violently on a few of the men. So it's a little bit different than Straw Dogs, or yeah, and uh, yeah, I, I don't want to spoil anything. You may, maybe one day you'll see it. I, I, it's one of those films that's like owned by different companies than a lot of the uh, the Warner Brothers controls a lot of the Peck and Paw titles. So it's it's had like a spottier home video history in the United States. I think Hen's Tooth video put it out in the u.s but uh it's yeah th- there's moments of real power there's moments that are very unpleasant uh it's a war film and it's not like a uh a radical spin on the war film like if you don't have if you have any kind of like natural aversion to the war film it's not one that might change your mind but if you're a peck and peckinpah completist it's probably an overall stronger film than the killer elite or osterman weekend or convoy like it, it i i would agree with the, the the idea that it's above you know those films but it's it's not one I return to a whole lot for pleasure because I'm not a big war movie person, but it's 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 fine. Yeah, it's, yeah. I, I, that's kind of why I was like, meh. I don't, I don't know if I'll I'll catch up with sometime soon, but I mean that I couldn't. He ran, he ran into budgetary problems on it, and I think the ending mm. was something that they had to kind of like had to like just basically force out at the last minute. It it it's. There's interesting things about it, and I could definitely see it having like a. a, a, a a passionate fan base. I mean, it, it's there's a lot of character to it. Like, it's not an, an, an anonymous film at all. Like, I mean, it, it, it's not generic. Um, but yeah, it, it's it's probably not one that you would return to for pleasure the way you would The Wild Bunch or Pat Garrett or even Alfredo Garcia. Yeah, you know what I don't really care for is Convoy. 
Um, <laughs> just to put it right out there, right up front. Sure. Uh, I, you know, it's. I've, I know. Um, you know, in the past, Patrick has kind of said that. Um, you know, there's certain kinds of comedies from maybe the 80s that he can't get into because they were very broad. And uh, that's understandable. I completely understand that. There's there's a, a, a point in time where a certain kind of comedy slash road movie uh, came out. It was in the late 70s. Oddly enough, this came out the year I was born, and it was like, the 12th top grossing film apparently um but it, you know there was the cb radio craze there was sure. um smoking the bandit exactly smoking the bandit a movie that um i remember watching with a couple of friends and kind of perplexed but enjoying it at the same time um yeah. but i mean it, it, it's it's fun to watch jackie gleason chew scenery um, but like I don't know the Cannonball Run, you got every which way but loose. These movies do nothing for me. I don't know. I just right. I just find them kind of um, inane and just n- not and, very interesting. And yet there was a massive audience for. Them. I know and, that's what's wild. And 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 Convoy is funny because it is by far the biggest commercial success of Sam Peckinpah's career, and yet it. It seems to have done him no favors. He was unemployable after it came out. <laughs> People never have taken it that seriously, like, in critical circles that, you know, we'll find things to defend in all of the other films. Um, it's had, like, a shitty time of it on home video up until only maybe the last 12 months, I think, a Blu-ray, a really good Blu-ray of it has come out. But, I mean, I remember renting it from a company called, I think, Cheesy Video or something like that. <laughs> it wasn't even le- completely letterboxed to the, uh, the the full aspect ratio of the of the film. It's... I remember... I remember when I, I was an intern at the Criterion Collection for uh, the, the latter half of 1998... Uh, or 98, 98? Yeah, it was 98. And um, uh, I remember some people in the office had like a guilty uh, affection for Convoy. Like it was like a guilty pleasure among some people there. And I never had seen it. I'd seen The Wild Bunch and Straw Dogs, but I didn't even know what Convoy was. But like um, watching it, yeah, it's... Uh, I, the things that I, I can appreciate about it, like again, Christofferson of course. is appealing. Um, he plays rubber Alan, duck. I know, I know. <laughs> Uh, Ellie McGraw is not an actress that I. Uh, he, she's like, but she's kind of like Catherine Ross, like the, that that same kind of like hmm. pretty, you know, and totally forgotten because there's like no, there's no cult following around these people. Like they were celebrities in the moment, but they um, they're not they're not taken as they're not they've never been respectable. And Ellie McGraw, like you know, all the reviews tend to like make fun of her involvement in it. Um, I, you know, it has, I think, some effective car chase action sequences. Oh, and yeah. It has, that's it that's has the an highlight. Effect, and it has, like I said about Junior Bonner also, but like has like a certain kind of affection for, you know, just plain-spoken middle America folks that, like, um, I think that that audience that would go to see a car chase or a truck driver kind of film, they don't feel condescended to. And I think that that's... Yeah, a big part of why that had an enduring impact, even if it is trash yeah. and not serious. And I, I think it actually Peckinpah's efforts to make it be about something more than 
truckers versus cops are a little awkward, like trying to make it like, you know, uh, what, like have Wallace be the name of the sheriff and have racial tensions. You know, like it's awkward. The, 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 the social commentary is quite ham-fisted in it. Um, <laughs> yeah. But it's, I, I think about like what, who who would have made this a hit? And I try to think about like the Christopherson being like a countercultural character in the seventies, and like at this point, it's it's almost like a redneck hippie kind of thing that he's embodying. It's almost like it, it's in a way, it's like it's like the truckers versus the law. <laughs> so it has like an almost kind of like Smokey and the Bandit of, again. <laughs> I guess so. Yeah, but it's like yeah, it's. I don't know, and it's, and a, and, a, and a real. I mean, obviously, politicians are demonized in it, so it's you know, it's 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 a very anarchic kind of film. <laughs> um, I don't know. It, it, it's dumb, and it is, uh, <laughs> I want to love a movie where you know Burt Young, you know, is like what's his name, Love Machine, and you got Ernest yes. Borgnine, Borgnine as uh, Dirty Lyle. I don't know. I, I part of me wants to love it. For I think it's his, its ridiculousness. Yeah. I think it's his worst film. It's funny, yeah, and, it it, is. It, and, and it's Peck and Paw. So of course they're trying to get away to Mexico, just like the Wild Bunch, Shocking. just like Billy the Kid. Yeah, but it's—it's—it is funny that this is the most widely, you know, successful film, but it is the worst one too. And then, you know, the Osterman Weekend. The, let's uh, get to this one, baby. Yeah, let's get to this because this this movie intrigued the hell out of me. It was the first film I'd watched for this episode. I found it to be bonkers, batshit, off the wall, fascinating. Like, like yeah. if Peckinpah did Southland Tales, it's just like <laughs> it's like so anarchic and weird and strangely funny at times. Um, I mean, it starts off like like a total De Palma film, and uh, you know, it's just you got an element of voyeurism, you got an element of surveillance, fucking with people, and. You know, it's it's an implausible, weird mess that I found myself really um, transfixed by, despite, like, there's huge disappointments throughout this movie where, you know, for, Dennis Hopper is kind of non-existent in this movie. I'm like, wow, you know, you got Dennis Hopper and he's kind of lifeless in this. And, uh, you know, I mean... It, it's weird because it feels like it's watered down, but yet at some instances it's like amplified to the max with something like that car chase out of the airport or the uh, the uh, um, motor home blowing up. Uh, it's just like yeah. there's really uh, like clearly he he didn't have a sense of control over this material. I think it was re-edited like nobody's business I, I i don't i don't know what they i don't think they were clear on what they had here but because like just just the element of you know john hurt controlling things and having ex- access to every tv available as like a big brother kind of thing <laughs> i don't yeah. know like i found that i found this to just be a weird train wreck that it was it was kind of bad but I appreciated it for that fact. I don't know. Yeah, no, it's an interesting... If it's a failure, it's not an uninteresting one. Yeah. Um, I mean, it has, like, this remarkable cast. I mean, Rutger Hauer's in it, and, uh, Dennis Hopper, like you said, Burt Lancaster, uh, 
Chris Sarandon, Meg Foster, Craig T. Nelson is, you know, before Poltergeist made him famous. I mean, he's perfectly good in this. Um, yeah, with his mustache. Yeah. Beautiful yeah, mustache. But, oh, it's it's breathtaking. But the, uh, yeah, I mean, and of course, like it's Robert Ludlum in, you know, uh, Peckinpah hated the novel. I don't know if he liked the script either. He was just trying to show that he could be a good professional delivered things on time when they took it away and tried to recut it like he didn't he just threw up his hands like he did not really fight for his vision this time he was just trying to make a competent pot boiler and if anything it's interesting to see the parallels with straw dogs because it's like you have the um you know you have the cat in the closet in that one you have the dog in the fridge in this one like oh, it, yeah. it's, it's it's you know it's it's another home invasion thing, and it's also friends and rivals in a sense, but it's it's also convoluted and confused. I mean, Killer Elite might be a little bit too coked up in its espionage to like really be completely coherent, but that's very straightforward compared to Osterman Weekend, which I don't I, I don't know that it's necessarily a problem that it's so convoluted, but because it's you know I don't know it's. It's got like these, you know, like you mentioned, like these kind of batshit action sequences, and it has all these likable actors, and this kind of claustrophobia at times. I, I don't know. I, and then a weird choice to confront the villain of the of the movie on like Rutger Hauer's sort of political show. I don't like that's 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 how you're going to get this guy. I mean, I, I understand like you're going to expose him for the fraud that he actually is and what right. he's done and all that. And it's just, it, it is kind of anticlimactic, but at, you know, at the same time, uh, it's, it's just, I don't know. Like I know he's trying to sort of comment on the unreliability of technology and just, it's like his cocaine infused paranoia is like very apparent in the way this is edited and the use of surveillance throughout this movie, it's just like, I did feel a little like anxious just, just because of how, um, you know, how this film was put together. It was just weird and surreal and kind of a train wreck, but yet so fascinating to watch. Yeah. No, it's, it's, I mean, if you're the kind of person that can appreciate the more derided, Brian De Palma thrillers. I think that you're the target audience for 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 this one because it, it has like that kind of same lurid, insane quality. Um, but it's not as stylistically assured as De Palma on his worst days. I mean, De Palma has made some bad films, but they're always directed with the same confidence as the good ones. This one feels like a guy that's tired. <laughs> You know, and he died the following year. I think the only things he made after were, were a pair of uh, Julian Lennon uh, videos, um, which yeah, are. I mean, you you probably grew up with both of them. You know, um, I don't know how to say. Is it is it Valat or Valat? I think it's I think it's Valat. If you're yeah I think yeah Valat and. Uh, uh, Too late for goodbyes, which you know were both pretty big singles at the time, um, and they're you know they're they're kind of mostly performance in the studio kind of videos. I mean, there's some kind of dancing in uh, in a doorway in <laughs> in uh, Too late for goodbyes, and in in and Valat is just him playing 
in a uh, studio at night and lo- while this other man is in the control booth just like watching him <laughs> it's a little, it's a little yeah. bit strange it's a little bit strange but it's the, the strangeness isn't really underlined uh in any way it's just i don't know i mean they 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 effectively sold julian lennon as a performer and made him successful for a minute you know but they weren't really anything that uh feel uh distinctly sam peckinpah i think that um I know that the, Julian Lennon's management were concerned that, you know, uh, it was so close to the time of Lennon, John Lennon's own assassination, they were really nervous what working with Sam Peckinpah would produce. <laughs> well, you know, I gotta say, like, he was a man with a singular vision. And like I've mentioned going all the way back to when I... Uh, you know, saying the praises of Paul Thomas Anderson. I like a director with balls. Yeah. With audacity. With just like, I'm going to do this just because I, I want to. Maybe other people won't get it. I don't care. You know, it's it's the go-for-broke confidence that sometimes just sells me on a filmmaker. And not only that, but he, he was a constructor of, brev- like, just... Astonishing sequences, um, both at, you know in 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 terms of an action genre film, but also like we mentioned with with Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid, just really reflective, meditative, melancholic sort of uh, um, acceptances of death in a beautiful sense. So I think like overall, I don't know if he's like you know top tier director for me, but at the same time, he's made some films that really, really are worth seeking out and watching and studying and um, praising the way we have here. I just, I think most people who see, you know, the films that we've talked about um, on this episode will get something out of it, even if they're not like over the moon, the way we are about some of them. Yeah. I mean, like I said, I mean, they're, they're films that, you know, are legitimately challenging uh, in in a way that like uh, certain sequences, you know, really test, really test you i mean as far as like whether or not you are just taken out of the film by what what he's saying uh, you often about yeah. women um but it, i mean even just about the nature of violence and and and, and men you know it's you know it, i think it's interesting because he's an artist dealing with real issues and you know internal issues and internal struggles in a way that is not always polite and is not always coherent <laughs> and True. uh and and that's you know i mean it's an it's an artist working within genre filmmaking, and it it's it sometimes you know makes me wonder like what he would have done if he was freed up from making action and westerns and thrillers and could just work outside those you know those settings altogether. But we'll never know, and I don't think anyone would have trusted him to tell stories outside the, any more than like someone like Hitchcock working outside the thriller medium. Like I wish, yeah, I wish. Know. I wish Alfredo Garcia would have been embraced at the time because I feel like after that was just sort of lambasted. I think I think he just sort of decided to go, you know what? I'm going to give the people what they want. I'm just going to compromise more or less and, you know, only do genre films without my usual signature approaches because like, you know, like we we talked about like the four films, they certainly have highlights and they certainly have moments, but they they just they just don't compare to the the highs you get from Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid and Alfredo Garcia and the Wild Bunch and Straw Dogs, so I mean, 
if you want to explore his career, you can certainly skip the last few films, but at the same time, there are certainly things about them that make them interesting. They're just not as interesting. Yeah, you definitely don't want to start there. <laughs> no, you don't want to start there, and I think I think you could easily start in, in, in chronological order with Ride the High Country and dabble from there if you if you so choose, because I... I, I do think it's a special film, despite it being one of his more lower key films. Yeah. Oh, I, 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 I mean, Ride the High Country is, yeah, is is a major film in the Peck and Paw canon for sure. I, I, and there's plenty of people that would say that's his best film. I, I wouldn't be one of them, but y- you, you'll find them out there. Um, yeah, I would say Major Dundee is the only one. If you follow it chronologically, is the only one that is probably more. You know, yeah. For 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 fans that are looking to complete it, that is definitely an interesting film. But if you skip over that one, Ride the High Country, The Wild Bunch, Straw Dogs, Ballad of Cable Hogue, you know, we we've talked about our reservations with that one. Um, uh, Straw Dogs, uh, Junior Bonner, The Getaway, Pat Garrett, and Billy the Kid, and uh, Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia. Like that's that's a pretty phenomenal run of films and and i think that that's you know those are the films that the reputation is based on and which you know what comes later is of interest if you've seen the films like i don't think the killer elite or cross of iron are completely worthless there's a lot of good stuff in them but yeah i mean the heyday is up to garcia yeah, hundred percent agree. And let's give our our top picks here. I mean, I I will say that you know, Straw Dogs is not on my on my top three, but it's one that I greatly look forward to watching again in a couple of years and having you know a full on discussion with other people because I think it's worth that. I think we need to give that more time. Like instead of doing Peck and Paw Part Two, I would simply want to just talk Straw Dogs and then pair it with something like Last House on the Left, like I mentioned earlier. Okay. Um, so for me, mm-hmm. I'm going Ride the High Country at number three, mm-hmm. Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid at number two, and Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia at number one. Yeah, that's, I mean, I think we're going to only have one overlapping title, because for me, I think I have Straw Dogs at number three, Junior Bonner at number two, and Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid at number one. Very good. I'm uh, I'm 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 actually impressed by your love of Junior Bonner. I think that's that's a really great choice. That maybe once I see it again, I might even feel. Now that I know what I'm in for, that's what I say a lot on the show. Is like, now that I know what to expect, maybe I'll like it even more. You know, it's like a good Sunday afternoon film. I don't know. Yeah, that's a, a good be- way to put it. Yeah. I don't know if it's a better film than The Wild Bunch or a better film than. You know, even bring me the help of Fred Garcia. Like I understand why other films have stronger reputations. I, yeah, I but these that, are our favorites. But these that's, are my favorites. That's yeah. what the list. Is. Yeah, yeah. I, I would not say that it's a better film than you know, Ride the High Country, for example. But I, I mean, if if I had to take three to Desert Island, those would be the three I would take. <laughs> Well, thank you so much once again, Bill, for coming on the show. Oh, sure. I'm sure you'll be on again later in the year, and I greatly look forward to that. And I also look forward to your visit uh, when we um, converse for your wonderful podcast. Oh, yeah. uh, what episode is coming up uh, for supporting characters? Uh, the next one coming out is uh, with uh, author Kayla Janice, uh, film program and author of uh, House of Psychotic Women, among other things. Um, that's the next one I have. And then after that, I'm interviewing... Uh, Joseph Gervaisi, who uh, is the guy behind uh, 
he's one of the people behind uh, Diabolic DVD and uh, the Philadelphia-based uh, repertory screening series um, Exhumed Films. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. He also does a podcast called Loud Fast Philly that's a punk rock uh, podcast. But uh, yeah, that's I'm interviewing him next week. Uh, Terrific. And, uh, Kayla's episode should probably be out before this one, I guess. Or if not, it'll be out next. It'll be out, uh, what is the day? The 23rd, 24th? It should be out like on Monday. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, I imagine this this one will come out maybe early in the weekend. We'll see. Okay. But um, yeah, I, I've, man, I can't tell you again how, how excited I am about future episodes of your show. And uh, yeah, th- you know. Th- just keeps getting better, man. Yeah, really. Well, we'll, be, we'll be doing your episode soon, and, uh, and we'll be talking later in the year about Peter Bogdanovich. <laughs> That's correct. Thanks for reminding me. Yeah. Uh, I'm looking forward to that, too. Me, too. Wow. So, yeah, um, where can people find your work? I mean, obviously, they can go to nowplayingnetwork.net for your I, podcast. I would say just there for right now. I mean, I haven't updated the Autorist <laughs> Trap blog in a long, long time, and I've just been too busy with supporting characters to do a whole lot else. Um, I did write something for... Uh, Diabolique, the uh, horror uh, magazine, uh, the website did a piece on a film called Pigs, and I have another piece in the works. Um, but yeah, I, check that site out anyway, just if you like horror films, because there's a lot of really strong writers on there, uh, including uh, one of my supporting characters, guest Sam Deegan, and actually Heather Drain also, I think, writes for them a little bit now, too. Oh, great. Um, but yeah, supporting characters for right now is the best place to find me. And you can also find me on Letterboxd, but I review things about once a year. <laughs> yeah, it's it's hard for me to sit and discipline myself in front of a type typewriter. Wait a minute, what what year is this? In front of my computer to uh, write reviews, but when I do, I tend to go for broke sometimes and just like pour out like, oh man, this is really what I feel. Uh, so I mean, it's it's hard. Yeah, like with as much as preparation as we do, and with as much as the movies we see, both for our own shows and and not, it's just like, ha. <sighs> How do people find time to write reviews these days? I don't know. But they do, and I'm proud of them. I'm glad that they do. People like Patrick Rapole, you should follow on Letterboxd. Yeah. Um, and, of course, Bill. And, of course, me. You can find me there um, at Instant Gym, as well as on Twitter, at same name. But um, really interesting choice for the next director, because this could be the first time maybe ever where i've yet not to i have not seen one film by agnes varda no i have not seen one thing yet so i'm just gonna binge on pretty much everything she's done with returning guest kate blair from the alfred hitchcock episode nice yeah and uh you know she's has she has a lot to say about her work and i'm really glad that she's going to be on again because she's a great guest and uh she also has a a blog of her own called selective viewing that i recommend so that's going to be a great episode i'm I'm really excited for that and uh probably a week later there's going to be a special treat a bonus episode with colin Suter and eric childress as we get nostalgic once again like we did last year for the year 1985 this time we're going to talk about 1986 oh yeah, because yeah. I, I enjoy this is becoming like a tradition where the you know the 90s is where I formed my musical identity. So I go back in time with my friend Dan and we talk about the year in music 20 years ago. But for films, I really fell in love with them in the mid 80s. So that's why it's fun to go back and see what holds up and 
what I still consider to be favorites. And it's also interesting to look back at the box office and where people were in their movie love back then. So yeah, it'll be a fun show. I think I think 1986 might be my favorite year for movies of that decade. But I, so mm. I'm looking forward to hearing. I mean, obviously you know what my favorite film of that year is, but I mean, there's, it's probably there's, mine too. Yeah, but there's a <laughs> lot of films from that year that hold up. So yeah, that's going to be exciting. <laughs> Yeah, so good good month of July coming up, a lot of good shows. Um, so yeah, stay tuned, and of course, uh, visit the Now Playing Network at nowplayingnetwork.net for all the great shows, and uh, visit directorsclubpodcast.com and send me an email over at directorsclubpodcast at gmail.com. So we'll talk to you in a couple weeks. Happy 4th of July, everybody, and uh, thanks again, Bill, for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. All right, take care, everybody. Before Poltergeist made him famous, I mean, he's perfectly good in this. Um, yeah, with his mustache. Yeah, beautiful mustache. Oh, it's it's breathtaking. <laughs>